Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind, two crickets and a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, as ever joined in this year, the year 2023 of our Lord, by the other half of your hosts. Gabriel Krauser, hello. So we're back. Welcome to 2023. Yeah, the year of the future, the year in which the pivotal moment of South African history until the next one. Uh, I think, I mean, I think it's a huge one for South Africa. It's, isn't it the year of the bunny rabbit? In the I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, but also the Chinese year doesn't entirely sync up with Georgian year. So I'm not 100% sure, but it may well be. It's this the 2020, we'll... it does. I mean, the, the Chinese year starts on January 22nd. The oh, rabbit is the symbol of longevity, peace, and prosperity. So well, here's the year hoping. of. <laughs> good lord man i mean because you know as we currently record this we're sitting in stage six um i am that's load shedding for anyone overseas listening that means uh power outages and yeah i'm currently running off of a battery not enjoying the hot hot day when i don't have the power to turn on my fan uh, which always makes it a little bit worse yeah stage six is like it's kind of like six hours a day for most people. There's a little bit of it. There's such an irritating thing where the stages, like we don't it's have... More. It's more like 10 hours a day, isn't it? It is more. Eight to well, 10, I think. Yeah. Eight to 10. If, you, right. if you're unlucky. It's like, if, it's if, like if, three... Can... It's like three sessions. Yes. Um, one and one of those hours. sessions is four hours, exactly. Yeah. And, and you can get... Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Th- this week we had one which was... <laughs> Uh, we had it off from six until ten, and then from two until six, yes. and then we had power the whole night. I mean, there's but, symmetry. Man. There's symmetry to that. <laughs> it's nice because your freezer, because it means your freezer gets a chance to like refreeze. <laughs> I know. I did. I've got to tell you, I had this great moment where I googled, um, "Is it okay if meat freezes and then?" thaws and then refreezes and and google said yes that's okay really yeah and you know google tends to like when i say google i mean you know i read the first five yeah, it article results. tells you that you have cancer and everything is a, is a safety issue yeah if you like does eating onions give you cancer yes does i mean oxygen actually does give you cancer it's like the most carcinogenic thing anyway so i was i was um Ever since then, load shedding has been not as bad to me as it had been before. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, so that's the silver lining I'm holding on to. I had some, I had a lamb roast. In fact, I took a huge risk because my former boss gave me this lamb roast, amongst other things, and I had it in the freezer and it defrosted. And then but it, I don't know how much it, de- like, I don't think it really defrosted. But, like, yeah, you see, of- the thing is, you don't really, you can't always tell. And especially when you are out of the house, and then you sort of go, yeah. mm. <laughs> and then for Boxing Day, like, I just, I was like, you know what, we're going to do it. And I took it and, and, and made it for my whole family oh, on the okay. Weaver. I don't know if some, someone might be listening. There's no, and there's it, no it, went, it went totally perfectly well. No one was pointing, ah, it was brilliant. delicious. Maybe it hadn't defrosted, maybe it hadn't thought, but I think it might have one time. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a holiday. It's been a real holiday, but we're back at it. And 
I'm I'm feeling kind of sick, and you're feeling kind of the not all pistons firing yet. But no, no, not yet. Uh, but nonetheless, but it's going to be a year of great prosperity, man. Because it, I just want to say the funny thing about the I didn't actually realize this. I just looked it up right now. But um, the, the the big global question uh, economically is is twenty three going to be a recession year? A recession year globally. And mm. and that question kind of comes down to China, and I think China's probably one of the. Um, yeah, I think we we don't always I agree about this. I said I read something today in Reuters that said that they're yeah. going to hit negative population growth for the first time since 1961 this year. Yeah, something like that. Yes, although a lot of this comes down to yeah you know, questions about census data, which is also funny because the South African census finished. And I never, I don't know that I ever. Yeah, I don't think I saw it either. I did look for it actually a little bit, but not very hard. I just kind of went, wait, but I don't know. It did happen during COVID, right? So it sort of got a bit messed up. I I was, I know my parents were counted by someone. Okay. (laughs) So presumably, between between the two of us, we know someone who was counted. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like better than an IRR poll, but not. An actual census <laughs> that counts everyone. <laughs> census sample size: thirty percent of the population. <laughs> you can make some guesses from that. <laughs> no, you can. You can definitely. definitely. But 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 yeah. So I mean, I do think. I I I kind of feel like since we last spoke, in some ways, the biggest story has been China shifting away from zero COVID policy. Yes. And which happened with remarkable speed, I must say. It was sort of here and then it wasn't. <laughs> and I think it's kind of the way that I thought it would happen. That you know, that he I I was one of those who thought that G's position was not so much that he wants to um like not that he's madly stupidly of the view that he can achieve zero COVID, but rather that he wants, I remember saying it on the show, like what he wants is moral exculpation. That's what everyone always wanted. And so with a few protests and a few uh, sort of gloomy experts saying we've got to cut this out, um, he could end the zero COVID policy and not be blamed publicly for everyone who dies from here on out, in at least in, in Chinese media. Like I can see the non-Chinese media have kind of shifted from being like China's lockdowns ridiculous to China's post-lockdown inability to manage things better than they are is ridiculous. And that, and that might be fair. Um, but at least internally, I suppose, you know, the, the thought is, look, you guys have protested for the, for the right to go and die. So we're going to let you have what you want. Um, and and you just can't blame us anymore and and so the flip uh, is you know as soon as that happened bloomberg forbes the economist they all altered their 23 recession predictions um if china grows you know with with growth expectations in china almost in the double digits uh off off a real base they could uh, and with China making up what almost ten percent of the world's economy, how much? Of, what what proportion of the world's economy is China? Uh, I think it's like fifteen or something, but I'm not hundred yeah, percent sure. Maybe wrong. They they would uh, 
hey, they're like, I mean, it depends if you can't purchasing price parity or, or just nominal GDP, but they're like approaching 20 trillion a year global. Yeah, so anyway, I think that they are, I imagine that they're going to be doing a lot of year of the rabbit that make money. Kind of mm, I'm not, I'm not so sure, but uh, yeah, we will see. I mean, um, I mean, uh, talking wise, um, surely you don't doubt that they're going to be talking it up. Oh yeah, no, they're going to they're going to be talking it up, um, but they usually do. <laughs> Considering uh, you know, prosperity no, has been kind of their their. I think, um, not. I think 2022, they did a lot of like um, anti-conspicuous consumption, like Chinese in 2020, celebrities they were seventeen percent of the world's economy. Seventeen, yeah. In twenty twenty, yeah. So they were saying like. Um, uh, uh, the, the the big the big trend in 2022 and this is like making uh the big um luxury brands lvmh and so on very nervous was that they were they were saying you know stop showing off wealth stop buying expensive stuff time oh yeah yeah, yeah. no in that sense yes no i see what you're saying yeah anyway. when they had the little crackdown on billionaires um okay so that's china and the world economy um What's going on in America? A couple of interesting things. One, uh, Joe Biden's back to being okay-ish in popularity, surprisingly. That's interesting. Yeah. What changed? Yeah. I don't really know. Some of it is, I think, the fact that he did well in the midterms. And honestly, when you have an electorate victory, you get more popular, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but whatever. <laughs> um, and, well, I guess it kind of makes sense if the thought is that <laughs> People like people who are liked. Yes, yes, but I mean, people like pooling a, esteem a, services. So when so when it gets demonstrated, right. this guy's kind of likable. But it's a strange thing. It is. Um, yeah. It's I, like I being famous for being famous. It is. It is. Does. I'll need to check his exact approval rating, but I think it's now in the sort of mid to high forties. Um, and this is from a guy who is something like a little bit more than a year ago was hitting thirty-eight percent in approval ratings, which is really bad. Uh, it was, it was low. in fact, I think a couple for a little while he was even lower than Trump's lowest, which was also pretty low. Yeah. Um, and there was a poll recently, I think, from YouGov, which had him at fifty percent approval and then forty-seven percent disapproval, something like that. Which yeah, I don't really understand it, but interesting nonetheless. Five thirty-eight doesn't have it that extreme, but they have like, like he was down to thirty-eight. Yeah, and now he's up to forty-four, so it's a huge swing, quite a bounce. And and if the yeah. trend continues and more polls come in, that yeah. average will lift, I'm sure. Because um, yeah. this is quite new. I think the I think the fifty percent one came out like two or three days ago. Yeah. Anyway, that's kind of interesting. Um, and I think that part of it is because he's begun a very deliberate attack to the center. Uh, he sort of, kind of visited the border. Um, I didn't follow it too closely. I, I believe there was some controversy over whether he actually went to the border or not. Um, and I think it was very sort of symbolic and such. But he's also started Yeah, but there were to... pictures of him at the border. Which yeah, is... yeah. There were pictures. And then there was also a thing that they're going to change the rules on 
on, on who can seek asylum or refuge and that kind of thing um, to make them a little bit stricter or a little bit less open to abuse. Right. I mean, he, and I think is, he was not just next to the border, but he was like the photos I saw, he was like next to a fence and he wasn't trying to tear it down. Right. So yes, there's like a bit yes. of a tacit like, okay, Trump built that right. wall partly and we're going to keep and, it. And, and also now there's a there's kind of a thing of it's, it's actually – this may turn out to be brilliant, in which case I'm going to have to eat a lot of pie or how rude I've been about Biden, but that he spent the first while being super left-wing and trying to win over as many people on his left and then switched uh, like in a kind of Bill Clinton-type way. Um, now that the Republicans have the lever of legislative power, at least shakily in the House, he is going to now come across as Mr. Compromise and Mr. Centrist and Sensible and all that kind of thing. And um, right, if he does because that... because now the... So the thought is that when the Democrats were in control of Congress, the Senate, and the House, if he got in the way of anything rhetorically or, or in, in hard you know, veto power or whatever, then he, right, then he, he would, would really... He would lose his left. Lose his left. But now, if he compromises... The left seems really stupid if they criticize him harshly for it because the more moderate Democrats will reply, dude, the only way we're going to get any of our yeah, wishes granted exactly. is going to be by. Uh, and at the same time, he's he's pointing to the Republicans who are mired in all sorts of complicated infighting and saying, hey, look how crazy they are. Don't I look great by comparison? Okay, quickly talk about Santos because I think this is hilarious. The dude who I, I first just saw, like, Republican says he worked for Goldman Sachs yes. and Citigroup and that he is Jewish and that his grandparents were slaughtered in the Holocaust and none of this yes. turns out to be true. And I was like... And that he's gay. A, and that he's gay. And yet he... Now... For sure, we don't know whether he is gay, but it turned out that he was married to a woman until 2020. Um, when and his story is that he was gay and that he is now straight kind of thing. And it's like he was gay when he was married to a woman. Yeah, it's, I it's, mean, it's all very weird, but what's, what's even worse is that so he's a Republican elected to the House from um, Long Island in New York, right? And he put all this stuff, he campaigned on all of these things as being part of his CV. He said, you know, I'm this really qualified guy. That's why he should elect me. And then just after the election, he there were lots of rumors circulating that he had made it all up. And then he went uh, ahead and um, admitted <laughs> to making it all up, <laughs> which <laughs> wasn't a great look. But it was after, I think, the New York Times did an entire long piece talking about how there was no record of him working for any of these companies. I think his university education was also in question. I think he yeah. said he went to an Ivy League. Um, his Jewish ancestry, he um, he replied to that one with, I think, my favorite line I've ever seen, which is he said, I never claimed to be Jewish. I said I was Jew-ish. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I have definitely, I've said that at which a party is, once. Which is not actually true because he, he, he did um, uh, uh, campaign on a pro-Israel ticket saying uh, that he was a proud American Jew. So, oh <laughs> I mean, whatever. <laughs> but, and no, it's been so funny because um, uh, some of the Republicans in New York uh, basically want him to resign and for the election yeah. to be recalled. Uh, he says that he's only going to resign if 142,000 people ask him to, which is, I presume, the number of votes he got. Uh, 
in in, in, his, in his state. Um, there was some talk of kicking him, of kind of isolating him uh, from committees and that kind of thing. But because he was loyal to Kevin McCarthy, who's the Republican speaker, um, mm. he uh, <laughs> he. I don't think he's going to be punished because Kevin McCarthy. That was the other thing that happened um, while while we went break. Uh, Kevin McCarthy had this big. Um, Weird, embarrassing fight to be Speaker of the House. Yeah, their house, their their parliamentary leader, lower house parliamentary leader, fifteen votes, and in the end, he just like gives some concessions to Matt Gates, Gates, yeah, about rules, the rules committee. Uh, the the best part of that though was when a very 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 right wing senator, uh, sorry, member of the House from I think Mississippi, who is very Trumpy and all that. But was on board with Kevin McCarthy, and interestingly enough, Kevin McCarthy was backed by Trump, and he was opposed by rebels who claimed, in a sense, to be carrying on the spirit of Trump while actually being in opposition to him. It was quite an interesting thing to show of how, firstly, Trumpism quite as powerful as he used to be, and secondly, that um, Trumpism or Trumpiness has become more than just the man. It's now sort of a way. It's like a style. I, I do think that's the interesting thing that happened, and. In, in in that debate and I it was it was sort of somewhat interesting seeing the left-wing media try to cover it yes because um, they were, they kept sort of talking about the pro the pro-trump lobby you know yeah while at the same time there were pictures of and this was also funny is that Marjorie Taylor Greene who is one of the craziest people in Congress um, at least on the right side uh, uh, was handing a live phone call with Donald Trump to one of the rebels um, in the house to try and get Donald uh, get Donald directly on the line with one of these rebels to get him in line to vote for Kevin McCarthy, and he ignored it. He just sort of waved her away and said, "Like, no, no I don't want to speak to the orange the Dorito." Exactly, uh, which was very interesting. Yeah, and and I just so I remember, like, I do think Victor Davis Hanson is the most interesting Trumpkin, as it were, because he, you know, is the super smart guy who made this argument for Trump um, uh, based on, uh, you know, Ajax and, uh, and, a, and a general kind of repeated theme in ancient Greek theater, as well as western cowboy movies that sometimes you need someone to come and save the town from the gangsters who are in bed with the sheriff who kind of you wouldn't want your daughter to be in the same town as so you know you let this guy in and then you chase him away and because of davis hansen's thesis which i think was probably the right way to think about Trump if you wanted to think about him sympathetically because because his thesis um, involved this thought that uh, that that Trump is is the is the dark hero is Ajax himself is the I don't really know john wayne's characters in the in the old westerns in the good bad and ugly whatever but like is this dark horse dude who comes in saves the day and then the movie always ends with him riding off into the sunset because he's not welcome in the town anymore he had a tough time kind of separating 
um, Trump from Trumpiness and would often make the case that people say, you know, I like Trump's policies. I like what he's doing. Look, look at, for example, the unemployment figures that he's achieved for African-Americans. I think that's great. But I don't like the tweets. Can't we sip? Can't we have someone else who's just like Donald Trump, but isn't actually Donald Trump? Someone who doesn't tweet on the golden toilet at the top of the tower with his name all over it. Someone with a little bit more style, a little bit more svelte panache, and a little bit less um, of this like glitzy, outrageous Dorito biscuit thing. And and Davis Hanson's comeback would always be, you know, that is that's what these stories for the last two and a half thousand years have taught us. Like every time John Wayne or Ajax or whomever comes in to save the town and they're spitting all over the floor and they kind of drink without paying for it at the bar and they kind of smash things along the way to saving the day. We always say, I wish that the share, you know, can't we have the hero just like that, but he doesn't do all of these, the bad things. He's not like giving a leery eye at my 16 year old daughter and stuff. And the stories are about the, this tragic view that no, you don't actually get that. And I remember him explicitly having this, um, the last Trump, the last intellectual conversation I can remember having, hearing about Trump was a year ago, like in 20, end of 2020, maybe even earlier, between Davis Hanson and Peter Robinson at the Hoover Institute um, and, and trying to, you know, uh, figure out if, it, if it'll ever come to be that, that the kind of Trumpkin banner will be this populist banner of like, you know, protect the borders, don't let jobs get Xeroxed from America to Mexico or China, um, be pro-business, low taxes, be uh, uh, kind of obstreperously uh, vocal in the public square in criticism of all things woke. I don't know what else you want to add as like your, your favorite sort of five Trumpkin characteristics but like have all of those things and have them not be um have them be distinguished from donald trump the the individual and i and i think vdh was like of course we can't tell what the future is going to bring but he fell more on the side of like i i don't think trump is ever going to be dethroned in that way he's going to always be the, well it's kind of interesting dude. is that the, as far as I can maybe tell, this rebels, is yeah the rebels are more like the tweeting side <laughs> without the really too much interest in the policy side. They did force some interesting-ish policy concessions, but that seemed to come from not necessarily the Matt Gates, but some of the other people in the Rebels. But um, do you know... Like not yeah. having riders on bills and things like that. Right. So, so, so I mean, that is... The concessions that they got were on the rules of the committee, on, on from the rules committee on the rules of passing legislation, right? I, yeah. Can you explain what, it, what does that mean, not having riders? Because I think it is interesting. That is what yeah, interests so you, me most is the kind of what is what have they actually won other than like some Twitter war? Um, so basically in uh, American lawmaking, you often get to circle out little chunks of money in these big bills to go to certain places or you get to attach two completely unrelated issues together. You sort of staple them together. Um, so you'll have the like... You're passing the legislation. The last big legislation was like gay people can get married, right? Yeah, you're, 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 wonderful you'll, get, you'll get the the gay the gay the gay marriage bill and the um, fund ceramic wear in Malaysia bill. 
that gets yep. stapled together. <laughs> and then you, you, if you support one, um, the, the, the leadership will sort of twist your arm and say, well, if you want the one that you care about to pass, you better vote for them. You have to vote for them together. You can't say, you can't pick and choose between the two. Um, which is terrible, <laughs> generally, <laughs> uh, at least in, in terms of the, the kind of laws it produces. Although there is an argument to be made that considering the complexity and the diffusion of power in the American system, that without such, uh, you might even call them slightly corrupt cutouts, that it would be almost impossible to, to pass anything ever, which is perhaps what the founders intended. <laughs> right. And but isn't it? It's it, I've always thought of it like this from my poll side days that some people, a lot of people, have this idea that like, wouldn't it be better if you were kind of just voting on one issue at a time, and instead of having representatives vote on it, you just have ordinary people vote on it? Right. That's the kind of direct democracy thing, right? But so it's not just direct democracy; it's also maximizing the the it's issue by issue direct democracy right so it's like do we want a road uh in joburg going from nicholas's house to mcdonald's <laughs> yes <laughs> so nicholas votes yes you know but then there's another question like do we want a road from gabriel's house to the to the ceramic exhibition uh, venue. And I'm like, yes. And so, yeah, if we politic together, we've got two special interests, right? We can get, you can get your yeah. family and I can get my family. That's not quite enough votes separately, but if we stick it on together, then we can get it together. Right. And that's, and that's in a very basic way, you know, this, this, this uh, horse trading, I don't know what horse trading actually is, but you know, somehow that's the word for when we're doing this thing of like, <laughs> I'll vote for the thing you want and you'll vote for the thing I want. But if they're kept as separate votes, then we kind of have to make the deal in the background. If they're stuck together, then at least it's transparent. So it's like there's one yeah. reason to allow them to be stuck together because it makes the trades explicit. Another in, reason... In, in recent years, we've seen also kind of a bit of a collapse of that backroom dealing, I think, um, because, because people things are far more partisan. Yeah. yeah. So and if you're seen to other... vote for something that the other side wants then you will get primaried by some lunatic in your district, even if they have no chance of winning. So, so, but the more serious reason to push against issue by issue voting is if you imagine the following scenario. So um, let's say uh, we're building a, a road from Nicholas's house to the McDonald's, but, but there's actually a little river along the way. And there's like a different department that's needed to build a bridge. Yeah. So, we could build the road and you build all this road, like five kilometers of road on this side of the river and five kilometers of road on that side of the river. But, but you didn't vote to build the bridge as well. And then it's completely useless. Right. And, in, and there are plenty of practical examples of this. You know, if you want to build a dam, it's one thing to dam up the water. It's another thing to get clearance for, you know, those people whose land is going to be lost as it gets flooded. It's going to be another thing to get the roads that go to the dam to uh, service it, to take advantage of the tourism opportunities of it. It's another thing to get the hydroelectric um, uh, sort of salvo built in 
alongside the dam that takes advantage of this potent potential energy in the elevated mass of water. And you, there's no point, you know, it, it might be that the dam's just not worth building without doing also the electric, uh, hydroelectric part of it. So you really want to vote for those together and for the roads. And you, you kind of want the whole package to be compared with the alternative package of building like a, a, a coal-fired power plant or a nuclear power plant somewhere else and with all of the 10 things that need to go with that. And so right. if you're thinking, of, you know, it's, it's the same as like if you think about going on holiday, you don't, you don't sort of first decide are we going to drive or fly and separately decide are we going to go to Durban or Cape Town and separately decide are we going to stay with friends or family or hotels and separately. Right. You kind of have to come up with the whole planned idea, which involves five different votable issues, but, but rather compare different viable options. And so the, the, the political science question is a little bit like if you have a rule – the rules committee, one way or another, is going to be, in, you know, someone has to be an agenda setter. And that's always a very powerful position. Um, and the agenda setter either has the following rule, uh, vote one issue at a time. And then it's a huge nightmare because you might vote for the dam but against the hydroelectric and instead for the coal. And then there's, <laughs> you know, it's a total mess up. So right. the alternative is to say, okay, you can let things stick together that aren't exactly the same. It's not just one issue by one issue. But you've got to make sure that there's some kind of logical connection between them. So it's yes. like all kind of related, you know? Yes. And, then the, and then the problem with that is, is there a judiciable, workable standard? Is there some kind of non-controversial recipe to follow that's going to make sure that you're avoiding the problems of issue-by-issue issue voting, creating roads to the middle of nowhere and buildings that don't have roads connected to them uh, in the middle of nowhere? Or um, it, is there a discretionary thing? There is a discretionary thing. And where there's discretion, there you are putting power in the hands of that small little committee. And they'll be like, dude, we're not going to stick it on unless you... We, we can see the argument for saying that it's logically connected, but we can also see the argument for saying it's not logically connected. And so we're only going to connect it if you give us something else that you want. And that's going to be a backroom deal. And then the third option is to do the way it's been, which is everything is open, everything's an ex explicit, there's no rules. The agenda setter is, is given the least power in, in, in the sense of occluding transparency. Anything can be stuck next to anything else. And so the public, in theory, is able to notice every time the... The, the ceramic standards people and the environmental protection standards people for rivers have had a bill stuck on together with whether you can gay marry or not. Um, it, and, and the public can punish or reward uh, their politicians for doing it. And there's a great, great example, I think, uh, from The Simpsons of, of the wonders of the rider was um, that Springfield is in trouble and they need the federal government to step in to help them. And the bill goes before Congress and they say, Bill to save Springfield. Uh, everyone, everyone on board, and then everyone's like, "Yes, yes, yes." Everyone's on board. No one opposed. And then someone puts up his hand and says, "No, wait, I want to put on a rider. Uh, I want to have one hundred million dollars to the erotic arts." <laughs> 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 and then the bill goes down in flames. And that was another thing is uh, what they called the poison pill amendments, which you yes. kind of love to stick on something. So you, you, you can sabotage legislation that is actually genuinely quite popular by forcing something hideously unpopular on with it.
So I think so. Very good point. It it it. There's another challenge to the to the to the current system. And 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 when I was learning the current system, not the current system, the system that's just been replaced. When I was learning about it, it struck me as unsatisfying. But it but it also strikes me that like, am I misunderstanding this? It sounds to me like America has just gone from a system that is maximally transparent in theory in the sense that it's like very clearly out there what's been stuck onto what. And anyone who takes the time to look at the laws can then see, uh, and they can see who the bill sponsors are and whatever, you know, they can see what kind of compromises have been made, where the poison pill is, where the, you know, stick on your favorite little pet project onto something else that's actually popular in order to get it through. The backroom deals are in the front room. They're all online. But it hasn't worked because it's so convoluted and there's so many bills and there's so much going on that no one has the time to really track it. And so the new system, the system that the these Republican like Well people extreme, do people do have um uh, uh interest in tracking it, and that's interest groups. Specific yeah, yeah. pressure activists and interest groups. And so the entire political process is dominated by no one ever wants to vote for something, even if it's popular, because you know that uh, most of your constituents will never hear about it, but the interest group that's opposed will definitely hear about it. And so it will cause you problems. Right. And it might, well, it might cause you problems. It might not. It might be that sometimes you can be like, it's going to be different for different interest groups. Some some are going to have more teeth and others less. But, but, but the point is, the point I'm trying to make is, uh, that it seems pretty fair to say American lawmakers haven't been doing a good job for the last 10, 20 years. And the operating hypothesis of changing these rules is that this is going to make things better. And that the way it's going to make things better is by making it less transparent, is by uh, forcing a committee to make calls on whether things are artificial stick-ons or whether they are core integrated, enmeshed, intertwined aspects of the same rule. And that that is something that making that call is always going to involve discretion. Uh, and so, and so if this is better and I'm saying that I'm, I'm done with the thought that it could be better. Uh, to have someone yeah, I'm pretty open to the work. idea too. Although I do think this is a problem of um, some good ideas being championed by people who are not actually that wedded to the idea themselves because they are pursuing something that isn't necessarily governance. <laughs> so this you is know, weird. Think, so it's like democracy, yeah. maybe we're sitting in a weird position where we think maybe democracy is going to get a little bit better on the margins because it's going to get a little bit less transparent thanks to people who have pushed through this rule, like with brinkmanship against their own party, not necessarily with principled uh, biographies that bespeak sort of high levels of honor. But so it's like, you know, this, this, this more hypocrisy rule has ridden in on a, on a slightly jaded, one of the uh, um, smelly breathed horse. And, and, of, and, 
<laughs> One of the interesting concessions, so in a lot of ways, they seem to have been trying to disempower the speaker specifically. Um, and and one of the other yeah yeah I, I i i think i mean also you get uh, the one one person can vote the speaker one one person can now one person can call it. the vote yes but you know you still can't you still need a majority of the of the house to actually do it so it's it's a little bit of a i mean the original the rule book previously was i think five or something uh, yeah, that one doesn't strike me as that's that that's the kind of thing that they made a big deal out of as being yeah. ah, you see, now we can get rid of him whenever we want, and we've ended the no. dictatorship of the speaker, but but not really. <laughs> yeah, no, that that seems like symbolic nonsense to me. Um anyway, kind of interesting. So the last thing I want to talk about in the US is uh remember we talked a little bit about um these uh classified documents being found at Trump's house. Yeah, Biden's now got classified documents in his <laughs> garage <laughs> underneath his Chevrolet, like in the boot of his Chevy. And um, to the Biden administration's credit, I do believe they have opened an investigation, like subpoena, I can't remember, they have some special name for it, these things. Um, special committee. committee. Yeah, special committee to investigate it, which is what should happen because there should be one standard, not two standards. Um but I do think that this means that, uh, and and the you know the Democrats have been out there saying, look, this isn't the same. It's not as severe. He didn't try to hide the documents. Uh, it was a mistake. He's cooperating from the beginning. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, investigation will reveal whether that's the case or not. Um, hopefully. But I do think that politically, this means that uh, it's going to be very difficult for anyone in the Justice Department to really go hammer and tongs on Donald Trump for. The, yeah, uh, classified information. So I think uh, Slippery Don gets out of another one, <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, dude. I that is I read that and I was like, God damn it, this guy, cat with nine lives. Hey, I mean, he's actually outperforming Zuma at this stage, big time. I, th I think, I think Trump has a, a superpower, and that is that he is blessed with enemies who are very incompetent. Yeah. That's a great superpower, and, dude. <laughs> and it means that no matter what he does, they just can't quite get him. They can't man him. He's too useless to be now. Very too useless to be uh, I mean, and this has been the case since long before politics, when he was, you know, like, diving and ducking and dodging from bankruptcy to this and that and into a branding thing here and into someone suing him for not providing a service and blah 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 <laughs> and it never ever seems to stick yeah i think dude can't we go back a step to right at the beginning i mean by the way it is it i i don't know back to biden so because this is about him um, I will say I, I saw somewhere the claim that uh, the Chinese government had made like $54 million worth of donations over a few years to UPenn. And I don't know if that was to the University of Pennsylvania generally or specifically to the UPenn Biden library, but my understanding is the, the Biden. 
another Chinese um, government has been over the last sort of five years or so just handing out money to universities left, right, and centre to try exactly. to win favour. So it's a pretty it's a pretty general thing. It does it it does. However, um, it is just an interesting point that if you if you're in a fancy American university or not a fancy, I mean, New Penn's hella fancy. Uh, oddly enough, it's where Donald Trump went to university. Hey, <laughs> and a nice, reminder nice. that this is quite a small world, I think. Yeah. At um, least when you get to those elite circles. <laughs> there are only eight Ivy Leagues. That's why it's a league. <laughs> Stanford's number nine. Uh, sort of in the league. Oh, oh, oh. Um, I, like, like university safe space, it is a, is a university of safe space. Uh, you know, I don't know. You, the, certainly the notion of safe spaceness came out of universities. It is just a kind of funny thing that if you're really worried about any of these documents getting into the hands of someone, like who would you be the most worried about? Well, I would be the most worried about the Chinese government getting the hold, getting hold of important documents because Beijing and Washington are the, are the most important adversaries in the world right and the and the chinese have been pretty much caught running a couple of intelligence operations against the american government now um dude there's no yeah <laughs> like but like but like blatant blatant ones you know yeah. uh using uh, using tiktok to track specific individuals in the united states um chinese spies trying to infiltrate the uh the the what are they called the staffs the staff of who's that really really dumb democrat what's his name uh ran for president talked about nuking oh, i can't remember his name anyway member of the house lives in a very blue district is a complete moron um he appears to have been he, he it turned out that he may have been sleeping with a chinese spy which is <laughs> rather embarrassing and then diane feinstein one of the democratic senators from california turned out that her staff seems to have hired a chinese spy as well so let's just say there's some espionage about at the moment yeah so i think that's an interesting background thing to that thing I can't imagine Biden breaking any rule on purpose because he's partly because he seems so dirty. I can dirty. imagine him he, breaking the rules, yeah, on, on by accident very easily. He seems so dopey to me, um, and I kind of I, I I thought the timing of his visit. I don't know when when people are like that. Um, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about Biden's presidency, and, and you and you brought this out earlier when you said, you know, maybe he's a genius and I and you're gonna have to eat a lot of hum humble pie. You me too. I've I've been pretty I was pretty negative, uh very negative in my appraisal, but always with this one caveat of like the you know the 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 drunken kung fu fighting style. There is and he has just leaned into this harder and harder, like his ability to lower the expectations of his adversaries. And then when the time is right, I don't know, eat like a, a right. A we really saw this in the, in then, the first debate against, against Trump. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In, in what's it? 2020 uh, where, you know, all the talk is, you know, is he going to be able to get a sentence out or is he just going to sort of fall over into a quivering mass of oldness? And then it turned out he was just kind of a weird old guy on stage. Well, the other, he was 50% of the weird old guys on stage. And as a result, everyone was like, "Ah, oh, well, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> wasn't that bad. And he's pretty, he's pretty cunning when he needs to be. Anyway, I thought that the visit is something really interesting because there's been this like, dude, I mean, Mexico has been 
engaged in a low-level civil war, as far as I can tell, over the yeah. last couple of weeks, with yeah. uh, the military being the called cartels. in to deal with the cartels, the the cartels, uh, and and precisely the threat. Like my very low-level understanding, I don't know if I'm getting any of this right, but my very low-level understanding is like there's been a kind of predominant cartel uh, where the father and the father was jailed and then escaped and then went back and the son has been, I don't know, killed or jailed or whatever, taken out of action. And so now that cartel is fracturing. And so a, a new, a very aggressive cartel is like on the rise. And what they're trying to do is punch through into America. They don't have good access to the States kind of each cartel's a little bit got its own territory and its own logistic lines into America. And these guys are trying to be the new head honchos. And so there's this very real American concern that if this thing doesn't go the right way, um, the the gang war in Mexico is going to uh, bleed into America. And the way that it's going to do that is by sort of replacing slightly more business oriented drug dealers with more um you know let's kind of uh, rule by fear uh, mobsters and the mexican military got called in and i think had some early successes i, I mean i think they've done pretty well but uh it's if 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 the other guys are going to be able to punch back you know I don't think it's decisive. Well, I, I, I did see someone describe the cartels as becoming less like a criminal organization and more like an insurgency now. Exactly. That's why, exactly. So it's like you when you've literally, it's no longer police against gangsters. It's the army against And they're Jews. taking and on the, a far more political aspect as well. They're kind of like, you know, we are the true representatives of this particular area. And, yeah. you know, they're we, not we are the real drugs. government. Right. They're, they're about fear. They're about like, we are in charge. And so that's hugely, hugely significant for, to Americans. And somehow, I mean, it just seems like the most, it just seems like the best time for Biden to go down. Um, because like as much as it's, it's spectacular to see an, a caravan of, you know, human beings marching through Mexico towards the border that have kind of gathered up from around South America, uh, you know, well, you know that was the that's the big fear. That's not as scary as like the gangsters are going to come through, right? Yeah, yeah. Can I just make a point on the border? There's two. There's two issues that have been bundled together as the border. One is, as you say, like illegal immigrants mostly coming from Venezuela, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, places like that. And then there's chaos and drugginess and violence and all that that are entirely if if all the immigrants stopped coming all of those would remain yeah um and they do often intersect with each other because you know sometimes the drug cartels are involved in smuggling people across and right. sometimes they're just destabilizing the thing so people find it easier to come across etc etc whatever but they are kind of slightly different issues which probably have slightly different uh answers and and i think they touch and I think they threaten America in different ways. And I think, anyway, I think that Biden has, this is the issue um, where America is less divided. Like America is not divided at all. Right. No one excepting some real Looney Tunes wants gangsters coming to town. 
Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just think it's really politically wise. It's wise timing for him to have made that visit. Um, uh, because I think Americans are really stressed out about this, about this other issue. And that's exactly what I was trying to say. The caravans of people coming through, you know, it looks spectacular. And I think some Americans see that and they're like, Oh my God, I want those people in. I want to help them. You know, it kind of brings out a, a, a motherly nurturing side or, a, you know, like bring in that cheap labor. I can see lots of opportunities. You know, I'm going to do or, business. Or alternatively, people. also a chase them away. They're coming to steal our jobs kind of thing. It's like, it, there, that's the really divisive one. That's the yeah. split. And with the other one, it's just like, no, everyone agrees. No, 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 uh, no, no to the gang stars. Anyway, so um, from from America, shall we? I don't think there's a good segue from the wall to the. Do you to want to the, talk about to the, the ANC conference? Is there anything to talk about? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think South Africa. What's there to say? The, the thing NC... I've been banging on about is yeah. is the the fact that on the NEC election, Andile Lungisa got eleventh place, eleventh highest number of votes, and he is. If ever there was a sign of malevolence, anti-democratic behavior, gangsterism in the ANC, it would be him. Um, he's the guy who went to jail until he was let out ridiculously early um, for smashing a heavy glass jar over a DA councillor's head in an attempt to disrupt a council meeting in Nelson Mandela Bay. Um, he's currently, I think, on probation or on parole or something like that, and uh, oh, <laughs> he gets elected. I think that we, there is a good segue, right? Because it's like, yeah. okay, when we look at ANC politicians, you know, we, we there's one version of looking at ANC politics where you kind of, you know, hear someone start a speech saying comrade, using this like Marxist language to talk about how we're going to uplift the poor by the, a combination of uh, fifth industrial revolution and mass redistribution of wealth. <laughs> yes and some people are like oh no that's scary communism and other people are like dude we're a flipping poor country that means you have to take from the rich and give to the poor but like when there's when there's dudes smashing glasses glass jugs over over their political adversaries heads i think we're talking we're, about it's yeah no, he hit, like he's lucky he didn't die <laughs> the guy yeah. who was hit in the head that that's the kind of thing where I feel like we're all unified in saying, you know, that's not the caravan, that's the gangster. You know, that's the, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> we're, we should all be against that, but the ANC. <laughs> I mean, I I do think that the valoration of violence is is kind of the scariest thing for me in South African politics. Um, I agree, and I, and and for me, he is a great symbol of the ANC moving towards that. I think that there's this complicated thing where I, 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 my worst moment, I was telling Nick before the show about my Christmas holiday times. Um, I, I really did take a break, but I did a few TV interviews and I did one radio. I did one radio interview and I was called in for another one. And how irritating is this? So the, the what is it called? Musclesport or Vesselsport? Anyway, this place where these three... All, oh, these, the free state. Yeah, this place in the middle of the free state, close to Bloom, where like three white dudes on camera are like um, roughhousing uh, two, three uh, black teens uh, in and around a swimming pool. And there's some roughhousing going both ways. Clearly, the, the white dude kind of starts it. 
Um, anyway, I get a call from SABC Radio, one of the radio stations, and they say, can we do an interview on this tomorrow morning? And they wanted to do it on the 30th or the, when was it? The 31st? Anyway, I said, that's fine. Um, they said, we want to do the, we want to do the interview at like 10 to at half past five in the morning. I was like, Oh, Oh my Lord. I, <laughs> who, who is listening to radio then? <laughs> I, I mean, in, in the usual course of things, I would, I would say yes, without skipping a beat, because in the usual course of things, there's a lot of people on the roads super early in the right. morning. That, yeah, on a normal in a normal week weekday but or whatever, that's between fine. Between <laughs> Christmas and New Year's, like no one is. This is. <laughs> yeah, you, the sound, the sound manager, and 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 maybe an insomnia, one insomniac are listening to it. That's about it. <laughs> but then you know, then you think probably not. You know, even in the even in that time, there's people that have got to drive. You know, supermarkets are still open and uh, essential services are still running. Nurses and all kinds of things. So okay, I'll do it. And, you know, my, I don't, I feel like my value add, like I'm always saying, I'm almost always saying things on radio and TV that, that people don't want to hear. Not ordinary listeners, but producers. So, because the producers tend to be political and our politics is very counter to most uh, media hotshots. So, I, I try and make up for that by just always being available. You know, it's like Gabriel. I I want producers to think, okay, Gabriel, he's 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 polite, and he tries to stick to the facts. I I can't hear you, Nick. He's, I think Nick is insulting me with his uh, uh, his mic muted. Um, but anyway, uh, I I I'm going to carry on with the story while while Nick figures this stuff out. So I try and be that guy who's just always available even if i'm sort of even if i've got views that are irritating to a producer so i say yes and like i kind of bargain with the lady to 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 bring it up to quarter to six from half past five um because honestly because that 15 I had a minutes makes all the difference <laughs> and, I, and i had a flight to catch and like i had to pack all my stuff up and take it to storage so like i really had kind of like I was, I was like packing until two in the morning, you know. So I really did, I really did want that extra fifteen minutes of sleep. Anyway, I get up at half past five, um, and then they don't call me to talk about this racist incident or this allegedly racist incident. Well, that's really annoying. And, and then I, at like ten to like five minutes after, you know, I'm waiting for the call, waiting for the call, like three, two minutes into the waiting time, like a message. Don't get a reply until like. A little while later, and it's like, oh, I'm sorry, we, you know, can we reschedule? Oh, you see, we had such a busy schedule, we had to bump you from the program. <laughs> and I was like, that is just very rude. That's extremely rude. Um, and I said, yes, let's reschedule. And then they never rescheduled. Mm. And anyway, so I think that, you know, the, the reason that incident jumps to mind is is that is that it's one of these cases where you know i think i don't know about most people but certainly almost everyone that i've seen make a comment on it um has had no doubt at all that this was a racial incident 
And I know that sometimes, you know, we've butted heads, but like, I just, um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say it looks like uh, it could be a badly racial incident, but, but it just, my imagination is also able to understand that incident within a context where it's not at all about race. Like I can imagine that before, um, beforehand, the, the, the white people said, you guys can't get in the swimming pool. This is whites only. That's how it was reported. No one directly quoted that they said that, but you know, this is the story is told without quotation marks. And then the journalists quote from what you can see in the film. And uh, if that's what happened beforehand, I mean, it's, it just, it just meshes perfectly with what you see in the film. These guys said no blacks allowed. The black kid gets in the pool all of the white people get out of the pool, excepting for the little kid who's too naive and innocent. So he jumps in uh, and then his parents kind of hustle him out or some older people like tell him, you've got to get out the pool. And some older lady is hanging out. She's the last to get out. Maybe she's um, kind of sweet and is looking for to be an ally. Like she won't be a leader, but like if someone else is going to say, this is bullshit, we don't have to get out just because he's getting in. Then she'll also like her weight will literally be on his side because she's not getting out of the pool. Maybe she's just like old and slow and kind of wants to give the leery eye. Uh, uh. But, uh, you know, it's, it's really weird. You see that, that, that CCTV footage um, of, you know, Blackhead jumping in the pool and then everyone else jumps out. Uh, uh, and eventually he's the only one in the pool. Uh, and, and then you cut to the handheld camera footage uh, where this old white guy, you know, sort of takes a swipe at the black kid's head uh, and, and says, get out the pool. And then he gets out the pool and then there's some some rough housing. And, and then lots of people get thrown back in. And then it does end with this kid, this, this old white guy kind of holding this black kid down under the water for a second. And then uh, another white guy kind of coming towards them. And it looks like in order to, you know, he, it looks like he's trying to break them up. Um, and, then, and then the thing stops. But then, you know, part of what's strange in the footage is that you've got this, you can hear, even though the camera's already rolling, uh, the black kid saying, video, video, video. So they're very aware that um, if this is filmed, this is going to look good for them. It's also weird that the film stops just at this moment when the second white guy is approaching the first white guy who's holding the black kid in the water. Um, because if what happens next is that that second white guy is actually helping the first white guy keep the kid's head down, then it's like, holy moly, this is like potentially uh, a drowning. Attempted, uh, attempted murder, I think, is the charge that's been... That is the up. charge. But alternatively, if the thing that happens is, I mean, you could, it, it looks very much like it's just starting, like is that he just, you know, uh, he kind of looks at the other white guy and that guy lifts his head, lifts the black kid's head out of the water. His head's been under the water for one second. Um, and the other white guy's like, you know, dude, you can't do this. Uh, I know you're just trying to give him a fright, but like, uh, just cool it, mate. You know, then it's exculpatory evidence for the charge of potential murder. There's no ways that that, that uh, uh, dunking someone uh, is uh, reasonably going to uh, uh, cause their death. 
So it's like, why, why did the film get cut right then at the moment when it actually becomes the most dispositive potential evidence one way or another for the most serious charge in the vicinity, which is the charge of attempted murder. And why on top of that, in the context of the person who's holding the video, uh, sort of seeming to be connected to this group that's quite conscious of how important video is. You know, they're shouting video, video, video uh, as the as the altercation starts to get heated. So then that makes me think, well, what could uh, what else could have happened beforehand? Like I, I have read maybe a dozen articles um, on all the usual channels, News 24, uh, Mail and Guardian, etc. And I haven't seen anyone, I haven't even seen like, you know, we asked the accused and their version and they, and they declined to comment or whatever. And there's been like an arraignment. So I don't know if there's been a bail hearing yet. So maybe they haven't had to give an official version, but like, you know, I have covered enough murder trials, actual murder trials in South Africa to know that um, sometimes the, the, the story isn't exactly as it first appears. The Schweizer Reinecke case, you know, you see that photo, like 12 white kids at one table, four black kids at another table. What's going on? Well, it turns out, you know, the parent who made that complaint is very sorry that he made that complaint. And that all the black parents of kids that have been in that, in also be class, were like, she's totally not racist. They were just sitting next to each other because they speak Tswana. And the kid, you know, it's the first day, five, an hour and a half later, they're all playing intermixed racially. Uh, uh, it's, uh, she's totally trying to, to, to maximize the, the children's well-being um, and not from any kind of uh, racist prejudice, you know? So, the, I mean, that photo looked to everyone who saw it that made a comment about it for a week, like it completely proved, like there could be no room for doubt that this proves that the teacher's racist. So, you know, uh, Panyaza Sufi went and fired the teacher, actually fired the wrong white teacher, um, Oh, Which man. is still my favorite detail in that story. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> can, can I? But, but so just I, yeah, let me we'll just say back. so the, the scenario in my mind, I don't know if this sounds crazy. You tell me if this sounds crazy. I can imagine these people on a, I can imagine a few scenarios, but like here's a scenario where it would not be racist, right? I imagine that these people who are paying customers to be at this uh, uh, resort. It's like, you know, it's like a kind of working class holiday spot. And, you know, one of the big features is the swimming pool and they're hanging out at the swimming pool. And the rule is usually that only paying customers, only people who are sleeping in the lodge can swim in the swimming pool. But it's like holiday time and they've got some friends over who just live in Bloom. So they like live an hour away and they've driven over. To, so some of the people are sleeping over in the lodge and some of the people are just friends who are visiting their friends who are actually paying to sleep in the lodge. And so kind of as their guests, the, the, the friends are part of the pool party. And it's a little bit like you're breaking the hotel rules, if you can call it a hotel, because you know if the rule is strictly only, only paying guests can stay here, can use the swimming pool, that's not what's happening. Non-paying guests are are, are are taking are swimming in the pool too, but they're swimming in the pool because they're the, because they are the personal guests. They're the friends of the people who are paying. And then these two guys come along, three guys, and they say, "Look, we also want to swim in the swimming pool. It's hot. They live next door. 
they work around there. They're on holiday. They also feel like, you know, having some fun. It's hella boring. Um, they're teenagers from poor households with not much entertainment. There's only so much TV you can watch in a day. And so they go to this thing and they're kind of like hoping that they'll just be let in as, as part of the crowd. And the people say, no, nah, dude, you can't come. The hotel people, someone who works at the thing or one of the people there says, dude, you can't get in here because you're not a paying guest. You're not, you're not staying in the lodge. And then they say, that's bullshit, dude. He's staying in the lodge. And he's staying in the lodge. But she's not. We know she's not. You know, our friend is actually the maid who cleans these rooms. And she knows that these people are not staying in the lodge. So you guys are lying to us. You're just saying we can't stay here because we're black. And then they reply, nah, dude, we, they're our friends. We have personally invited them to come and hang over. You know, they're in our family. And then, they, and then the kids think, you know, uh, you're just saying that because all you white people are on one team. And I, you know, I think that the kids, like, I'm not trying to tell the, the story that's the least sympathetic to the kids. I could, I could tell a, another version that's, that's less sympathetic. But in this version, you know, I think those kids, you can kind of understand how they might, you know, they hear a lot of stuff at school from the teachers, especially the headmaster, about how it's a white man's world and Mandela was a sellout and democracy is rubbish and Malema is a hero and all white people, you know, white monopoly capital is a real thing. White people are kind of all on the same team and they're out to get you. And the only way that you're going to get anywhere in life is by um, standing up for yourself against these white oppressors. And then you go here and you're like, you know, you kind of feel embarrassed in the first place that you, you, you can't swim in the pool. Um, and that, you know, you don't really want to hang out with these people, but part of you does want to hang out with these people because... You know, the funny thing about being indoctrinated with like an anti-white attitude is that you do think that white people are quite special. So you kind of love the idea of like befriending them. You know, I don't know. You're in a complicated psychological space. And the, and you do catch them out in a lie. They say only paying uh, guests can go in the pool. And you know that's not true. And you've got this little inside piece of information. And it kind of proves to you everything that you suspected. And then when they come back with like, no, we've invited them, that just sounds like a typical white lie. And so there's a bit of a, an argument about that and you go away and you hang out and then you, and then you like have chats with your friends and, and like you work each other up into like, and now dude, these guys are just being racist assholes. We should just go back there and swim in the pool. And so you go back half an hour later after having like worked yourself up and you jump in, you know, the brave one amongst you jumps in and the, and the, and the people that are there are like, no ways. This is, uh, you know, we've actually, this is kind of a big deal. You know, we had this conversation. We explained to you what the rules of the situation are. And we don't want to condone this. We don't want to make this normal. Like, and if we, if we do, if we let you jump in, then we're worried. Then like the next guy's going to jump in. And, and more than anything, it's like, if we hadn't had this conversation and you just jumped in, that would be one thing. But like, we've had this conversation and we've said, no, you can't do this. You know, it's like if someone comes and sits down, if I was at a restaurant table and there's like places for four people and there's two of us sitting there, my partner and I, you know, some days if someone said, please, can I come and sit at your table as well? We might say yes. 
maybe we feel kind of bored and we want to have a chat. Or maybe it's like we're working on our laptops and it's like in an overcrowded cafe and we feel kind of bad that we've got like a four-person table. We say, yes, okay, you know, we're all going to be quiet in our own little silos anyway. But some days I would say no. Most assuredly, there are some days I'm having a romantic dinner with my partner. You're not invited. Uh, even if I know you, you know, there are some friends, you know, they sat down, like, unless something terrible just happened to them, you know, if they were just kind of lonely. I'd be like, nah, dude, we're kind of busy here. Uh, and then if they did sit down, I would get up and leave. And that would be ostracizing them. That would be insulting. Uh, but I would do that because we've already had the conversation. You know, ideally, they, they, you know, if they just sat down, I'd be like, hey, you know, we don't know each other. And I can see how you saw this empty chair and you thought it's okay for you to sit here. But we're actually having a dinner here and this is how this thing works. You're not invited to our dinner. And, and so I'd like you to just find another table. And if there's no place, you know, go to another restaurant. Um, I, I don't think that'd be a crazy thing to do. So, you know, there's, there's a version of how the story might have played out, to my mind, consistent with the video, uh, in which the issue is not at all that they're black. The issue is that they're kind of snotty teenagers. And by the way, that story that I just told is like almost straight out of some, you know, a, a J.R. Tolkien murder mystery that she wrote uh, under a pseudonym. Uh, with English yobs, you know, everyone is white, but there's like a hotel scene where these like yobbo kids kind of go jump in the pool and and the and the paying guests are like, nah, dude, you're not welcome. And it causes a ruckus. So, you know, I think that I think it'd be great to know the details. And maybe and maybe like I haven't been following the story closely enough since the first two days. You know, since after that incident, like I haven't followed the follow-up. So maybe I'm missing something. But if, but to my mind, Ramaphosa taking those two kids and making him stand next to them and endorsing the theory that there was attempted murder and endorsing them uh, who were, you know, I mean, 18-year-olds pushing 60-year-olds into a pool. You know, there's, I mean, there's definitely some violence directed at them. There's definitely some violence from them directed at the adults, at the seniors. You know, it's like, um, if they were all black, like there's no ways in my mind that Ramaphosa would be endorsing any of what the kids did there. He'd be like, unless, unless you know what happened beforehand is that the adults were like, no Zulus in the pool and they're a bunch of vendors. Uh, unless you knew specifically that that happened. I, I think it would, it would seem like, sure, these kids are being a bit bolshy. Uh, why? You'd need to know. You'd need to know what the reason for the for the beef is in order to know something very important about the kind of moral judgment that that needs to be made about the scene. And I'm not sure that Ramaphosa has that information. I'm not sure that he's asked for that information. And I feel confident that most people don't have that information, and that what he's doing is endorsing a kind of uh, soft core, like soft core violence. You know, it's, no one was. Those kids definitely didn't try to kill anyone um, or, or, or permanently injure anyone. But, you know, the valorization, it's, it's like very, it's very, it's a, it's a much softer example than voting for the guy who smashed a, a water jug over someone's head. But it's still kind of disturbing to me. Yeah, uh, this is exactly why 
once again we have court things right because one hopes that all of this will come out in a court in the court here right so it would i mean i th- i think that um in my experience whenever there's a race based case like this where white people are accused of, of perpetrating racist violence against black people the lawyers in, in rural south africa the lawyers immediately come in and say don't tell anything to anyone in the press so you know i think that uh, they, they will they will give their version and 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 then the problem is you know can you trust them you know if they just say their own version part part of what i find frustrating by the way about that way of going about things is like it does mean by the time their version comes out they have had enough time to collude right but they would no, have it would be useful uh, I, I agree immediately. that it would so be useful if the media had asked them for a statement and all that kind of thing in the initial reporting of the story and then if they had said something completely insane or if they had admitted to it or something it would have at least removed i think some of the concerns that you may you may have here yeah i mean i i think asking questions is the media's job like ask both <laughs> sides um you don't have to report that both sides are right you don't have to give them equal respect but you do have no to... but you do need to at least a quote from both sides yeah no, that's true. And it's weird. Mm. I mean, Haramaposa, like, don't be afraid of white people. Like, that's you a see, that's, statement to disambiguate. Exactly. That's what, that's, I think, what really kind of got lots of people's sort of attention on this whole thing beyond just the kind of usual end-of-year racist incident that we seem to have every every December or January or whatever, was that framing of it. It is odd, isn't it? So I think that... Um, the way to understand it as a good idea is if you think of the status of whiteness uh, should 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 that be if you know everything about a person and you're not afraid of them and then you know that they're white that makes you afraid of them like that's not a good idea and pushing against that idea is, is good and right, you can you can interpret it in a bunch of different ways, right? One is that look, guys, you know, this kind of thinking about white people looming over you is a bad thing, because you know these are this isn't apartheid anymore. Things are different, and we must just go on in this new world that's got nothing to do with the the the, the past. And then there's another version which is like we have the power now, the shoes on the other foot, we can do what we like to them because they can't fight back. It's ambiguous. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if if it were followed up with, you know, don't be afraid of white people, um, do be afraid of your own uh, proclivity to violence and bias and short temper. You know, it's like they're they're be careful of your own inner demons. That didn't seem to be. I read I read the speech. I didn't see the whole delivery, but I did read. The, the transcript of, of everything that he said. And I didn't find much to contextualize it in a way that 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 ameliorated my concern that once again someone powerful in South Africa is taking advantage of shadow boxing apartheid. 
of of acting as if you know that which was fair to say in 1976 in the trenches you know outside the schools of Soweto uh, 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 is, is is still fair to say that that just um, yeah it's it's also just you know so if the worst most racist version of the story is true if these guys have you know said no black kids in the pool black kid had jumped in and then these old white men came to enforce some sort of old apartheid law them. They got arrested and they're going to stand trial for assault as should happen. Yeah. And that is not what would have happened in 1975. No, dude. And Read I my trade is hard. I mean, do you, have no. you, you, have you read that book? I have not. I've only read resident alien. Brian's second book, which is weird because my trade's heart's the famous one. Like, oh, okay. Spoiler alert. There's 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 one chapter in there. I don't know. Is it called Blue Skies? Um, it was like this, you know. I don't know. Describe South African four words. Somehow, I don't know. Everyone of our parents' generation would know the reference, or at least most white people. Of like, um, what is it? Blue skies, brise, and Chevrolet. And Chevrolet. Something like that it was an advert, I think, in the seventies. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, like South Africans just got TVs. They were very excited. Dallas was on TV and then there'd be a Chevy ad and everyone, it was memeing so hard, dude. There was, they just literally just got TVs. Can you imagine how, how hard ads were memeing back then? Anyway, so <laughs> Rian's got a chapter about, <laughs> about blue skies, brides and Chevrolet. And it is so awful, dude. It is like, it's exactly the Gothic horror that um, this attempted murder version of events is kind of, uh, drawing on it's this true story about these white dudes who are it's 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 a blues it's a blue sky like december you know holiday and they're pulling in there with their chevys and their hot chickies and drinking by the swimming pool and brying and having a lack of time and along comes a black dude who works there and is late the gardener is like a dopey i don't know or it's like a stranger looking for the gardener or something. And I can't remember the details. But they just decide to teach this guy a lesson, I think is one of the phrases, you know, for for for, for right. being black and interrupting their swimming pool party. And they murder this guy. And they don't do it slowly. It's awful. It's so... It's... I mean, they, like, torture him for hours. That he he kind of dies, what is it, like in a drum or like suffocating, you know, just kind of a heat stroke. I don't know, after being beaten and having his skull crashed in, but he's like still alive and like gasping. And like they kind of semi bury him, you know, they kind of hide it, you know, pseudo bury him alive. It's so awful. And the weird thing about the story as it's retold, because there's some like, uh, anyway, I, I won't get into all of it, but. Um, of how of how the of how the story gets out, but you know there is this sense of just another Sunday. Like, and it wasn't actually the case that this was happening every Sunday, but it was it, the it case enough, that you could you could you I could have a family anecdote that's not as serious, but like the angriest my grandfather ever got was when he saw a less extreme version of this happening to some. I think it was a like early teens black kid was doing something and two sort of 18 year old, 20 year old 
uh, white guys decided to beat him to a pulp because kind of they could. Um, and my grandfather said that he never has blacked out in his life before. And when he came to, he was bashing their heads together. <laughs> in a psychotic rage attacking them. But yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it was, it was not every Sunday, but it was more than people. Some, it was something that I think most people had probably seen at least once in their life, even if they were, you know, a white person who lived in that like comfiest, nicest suburb. Yeah, cushioned. Yeah. And it's like, you know, Zizek, the sort of weird uh, East European philosopher, uh, he's got this notion of the big other in his like example, his cardinal example is, you know, these sort of rules of societies. Like, you know, some guy moves into the South to a little honky tonk town um, in the 1910s or something. And uh, and, and all, everyone's a gossiping and a whispering, like, what's he all about? Oh, good Lord, look at those strong arms he has. Oh, honey bunch. And, uh, you know, then he doesn't show up to church on Sunday. And all the gossip on Monday is like, oh, Lord and Lord, he be some kind of heathen man. You're terrible. Uh, how can it be, this newcomer, looking so strapping good in his, uh, in his cowboy sealskin boots, but didn't come to church. And then, Silkskin boots, that's not a real snakeskin boots. Anyway, snakeskin. Then then like on, on like Friday night or whatever it is, like he rocks up with his like white balaclava kind of you know tent hat thing to the clan gathering and uh uh you know joins the joins the ritual. And then on, on Saturday all the gossip is like, Oh, Henry is such a good man. You know, it's like so there's the official rule, which is you've got to come to church to be like a good Christian um, in this little version of the time. But like, you don't actually have to come to church. What you need to do is stick to the unofficial rule um, and, and be a clansman. And then you're a really good Christian in, in, the, in that uh, corrupted sense of things. So, you know, that's the big other rule. It's, the, it's like you can break, and we, I've, we've talked about this at, at school levels. You know, it's like um, at our school, Nicholas didn't like to watch, it was compulsory to watch the first team rugby play. And Nicholas didn't dig it. And sometimes he got away with, with skipping it. Um, and in a way, the school, our school kind of had built into itself a tolerance for that kind of rule breaking. But you couldn't break the rule of skipping like there were other things that you really couldn't skip. Uh, and some of them, obviously, like your exams, but some of them more symbolic, like, I don't know, uh, headmaster's chapel or something. Right. Yeah. So... So, yeah, it's kind of this big other rule that, like, you know, in a lot of places, you would, you, your grandfather's response would be the one that would get in trouble. You know, it's like uh, the, the unwritten rule is not to enforce against people, against white people who. Yeah, not to people. interfere. Yeah. Right. This is, a, and, and there are other rules like that. You know, I mean, there was like a harsh, amazingly harsh patriarchal thing. Like, a lot of neighbor. You hear your neighbor beating up his wife. You don't interfere. Yes, that's that's his domain. So you're not allowed to interfere. But well, you know, and it's precisely because of violating that rule that he had like his phone bugged and such uh, through a significant portion of his adult life. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's so 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 I can understand why. So so this is the thing. Like, if some dude on Twitter jumps to that conclusion, that doesn't bug me so much. That, you know, someone, some guy on Twitter sees this video 
and thinks to themselves, oh, my God, it's like it's blue skies, Chevrolets, Brys, and murder all over again. Um, and attempted murder all over again and beat the blacks all over again. Like, that doesn't yeah, it, it's like The story, the story kind of the makes president. sense from your from your from your race of from your batch of stereotypes right like if you were to imagine where this story takes place this is the kind of cast of characters you choose older people you choose the free state that kind of thing and i think yeah. that makes a lot of people uh you know find it very easy to go go along with yeah but if you've been here the president i feel like you've got to be i really do think you have to be more careful i think you have to emphasize you know the the strength of our country's unity the fact that this kind of thing if it is the worst racist version of the story is so extraordinarily rare right and and you can always say that thing that you know like american presidents will often say which is like uh, this isn't us this yeah. is not who we are as a country yeah it's not a bad thing to say and also that thing that that's you know that uh, the brits said when their london subway was 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 bombed the, the French have said when they, when they suffer terror attacks, very common thing to say when you suffer a terror attack is like, we're not going to um, become what our enemy wants us to be. We're not going to stay at home because we're afraid to come out. We're not going to treat each other with suspicion based on... Right. After September 11th, George W. gave a whole thing about how, uh, you know, Islam is a religion of love and peace and that kind of thing, right? That's real. I, I mean, George Bush is like, you know. <laughs> yeah, Ramaphosa is not as good as Bush. Um, and, you know, I really, really, I think Bush is like one of the worst. <laughs> great, great to have a beer with, but like had such terrible effect. But exactly. It doesn't, it just, it just requires so little. I think part of what's challenging about this is that you know, I was going over the holiday over my notes. It just is, I find it so frustrating that, that Ramaphosa is coming up to uh, re-election. Like, in 2023, is he, is he going to face the, you know, Obama, what is one of the first questions Obama got asked when he became president? Dude, you're on the record for supporting various affirmative action policies. Do you think that your children are disadvantaged or previously disadvantaged or fit in that category and should be given a leg up in their Ivy League school applications or their job applications and so on? And Obama said, of course not. Hell no. By contrast, <laughs> Ramaphosa's eldest son, the whole Bosasa story, you know, it started with Ramaphosa. The very first scandal of Ramaphosa's presidency is that he's, you know, it turns out that he was, that his campaign got donations from Agrisi and Basasa, and he denied that such uh, donations had been made and uh, in parliament. And then the public protector said he's lied to parliament. Uh, but he came out, the, the way that we knew, know that he was wrong is much like with Biden, like he, he implicated himself. He came out a week or two later and said, look, I feel like I need to tell Parliament that I said that I didn't get any donations, but that's not true. That's what I believed at the time. But subsequently, I've been informed that that's not true, and I'm very sorry. And um, uh, and and how did it work? Well, his son had been hired as a consultant for Bosasa, explicitly as a BEE consultant and explicitly with his consulting uh, role, earning them BEE points. 
So he has gotten business. The son of a billionaire president, at the time deputy president, got business on the basis that he needs special advantage from the government because he's such a such a poor little flower. You know, it's like it's it's a gaping difference, and and I think that uh, Ramaphosa is not nearly as good as Obama, right? And and I think that that's sort of a way to understand how that's true. Like Obama had it in him, as did Mandela, to to caution against black militant nationalism. To say, you know, white supremacy, that's awful. Apartheid, that's awful. You know what? It'd also be awful putting the shoe on the other foot. Exactly those two interpretations that you started out by laying out of the phrase, don't be afraid of white people. Those great leaders had the ability to make that distinction and say some things that that really make it clear which one of the two they're talking about and kind of talk down the people that are trying to you know say okay well shoes on the other foot no one can stop us now and Ramaphosa has sort of painted himself into this corner where where it's not just in that speech it's his whole presidency I can't find anything that 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 mitigates against this uh, notion so I'm not saying he's for it in fact I'm fairly confident that he's not for um, you know, vigilante justice against white monopoly capital. Um, yeah, but, but he's not. He's not. He's got no leadership contribution to to mitigating against Malema's. You know, um, uh, I'm I'm not going to promise not to to uh, endorse genocide against whites in South Africa, kind of thing. like. He, like you know, <laughs> in a way, Ramaphosa is also not prepared to uh, to promise one way or another. He just doesn't get asked the question or any of these questions. Like no one has followed up. Like should like does the president, in the same sense, need to be saying, "Hey, don't be afraid of Indians. Don't be afraid of blacks. Don't be afraid of anyone." In the sense that you shouldn't feel like you live in a land of terror. Uh, is the president willing to? You know, is there any kind of non-racial statement like? a race-neutral statement that he's prepared to make that will specifically disambiguate. I don't know. Anyway, we've gone on about... You've, I've, I've gone on a real... No, it was the it was the race relations topic of the last uh, three, four months, I would say. Or at least two months. Um, it's worth, worth a think about. Uh, but of course, you're also, you know, from the cynical political side, you kind of look at this guy who clearly isn't too interested in adopting anything different in terms of policy or ideology, isn't too interested in pushing back against his party. So if you can't do those things, what do you campaign on? Well, playing sort of race nationalist silly burgers because, you know, the power's going off, the economy's not doing great. There's not much else you can campaign on. Yeah, and I think that you know to watch out for twenty twenty three is is the is the chickens coming home to roost? Like, when does stage eight load shedding hit? Let's say it hits in March. By the time you get to August, uh, you could have. Uh, All right. So here's a question I've been thinking about recently. Let's say some of some version of something close to like the second worst ESCOM scenario happens. Like we hit into yeah. basically permanent stage 10 or something like that. Do we get to the election with the government surviving? Yes. 
I think so. You think so? Because I was thinking that was my assumption too. But one, you know, I don't know. There just feels like this kind of oppressive, fed up attitude. And maybe it's entirely self-constructed on my part. But I just wonder whether there won't be some, maybe not even a majority of South Africans, but a very significant chunk who will, at this, at some sort of spark, be like, okay, we're doing July riots, but this time it's going to be a little bit more political and a little bit less looty. Yeah. No, so I think I think that is likely to happen, but... I think it goes like this. I mean, I, this is the bad scenario, which I think is more likely than its alternative. Is that you hit, um, uh, yeah, const- you know, you, you, you've got kind of electricity six hours a day, 10 hours a day, whatever it is. But, you know, you, you're sort of without it more than you're with it. Um, you're coming into the winter and inflation is is not as bad as it was last year but we haven't really added much more jobs and those who've been without work you know if you look at the unemployment data one of the really weird things is to see that uh like in the in the in 2010 uh half the people roughly that were unemployed had been unemployed for less than a year whereas now after the after the and then that starts climbing and then it really climbs after COVID and now it's like more than eighty percent of people who've unemployed have been unemployed for more than a year, so it's like we've got the highest unemployment in the world and it's not just that those people are unemployed it's that they're they've been unemployed for more than a year, and um, I think that uh, you know like if you if you if you my supposition is that if you track how someone survives, um, the story changes as you go along. That it's very different being unemployed for six months versus versus eighteen months versus uh, thirty eight months. And I think by the time you're unemployed for long enough, one of the things that happens is that whatever social uh, network you've belonged to that has had like a healthful uh, uh, aspect. They've either managed to find your job, your cousin who's kind of, you know, working at checkers as a teller has managed to finally get you a job, uh, you know, guarding the cars or whatever it is. Or the people that know you and like you, your friends and family, they've tried and they've failed. And they don't hang out with you anymore because... You've burned through your social capital. You've, you've, you, you don't have, you don't have any of it left. It's kind of awkward being around a dude who like every time, if we want to have a beer, I have to pay. If we want to have some shisa and yama, I have to pay. If we want to have sump and beans, I got to bring the sump and the beans. Like you're just always a drain to be around. And it's and, at your house. <laughs> and it's <laughs> at my, and you're kind of day. like, and you're like sad to be around and you get more sour. You get more upsetting to be around because this, it's such a sad story to be around. So you've, you, you don't have any, you bec- like part of, part of Braithwaite's insight, the Australian criminologist who kind of gave birth to the economy of his team, part of his, you know, one of the things to notice about becoming antisocial is, is, is its two-way nature, is that um, um, like society turns its back, you know, like Lion King, dude, society turns its back on you, you turn your back on society. Uh, and, you, you know, you go from being the king to being friends with Timon and Pumbaa. Uh, and their whole attitude is Hakuna Matata, 
if you know the zebras turn around and fight at you, you turn around and fight back at them. And and Timon and Pumbaa, the Lion King is such a beautiful story for, for kids because it has this um, uh, Bildungsroman, uh, you know, standard um, format of the child going through adolescence, going through uh, replacing the father figure and 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 into adulthood. There is this rebellious phase. But it's the nice, they only have the nicest part of the rebellious phase, right? It's like, you know, eating grubs and kind of laughing at authority. In the real world, uh, for people who are living off the edge, past the edge, um, I think that you, you just get more and more rewarded by a new social network that uh, v valorizes violence and chastises charity. And, uh, and I think that, you know, you get more and more people in that pipeline um, and, you've, and you've got a bit of a problem. And, and those are not the only people, by the way, at, involved. There's also the cousin who still has his job but has seen that four of his cousins have now turned to a life of crime. One of them's dead already. The other one we haven't heard from in a long time could be dead. The other two are kind of like, you know, pilfering old grannies on their way to the spaza shop in order to live off sample beans. And it's just a matter of time before they either upgrade into being hijacking gang stars or um, become kind of just uh, uh, wastrels that are kind of begging for calories. So I think that in, 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 in that kind of backdrop, like a no growth, more unemployment, and not just more unemployment, more people that have now, the million, one and a half million jobs that were lost during the plague that haven't been regained, those people now going from having been unemployed for a year, a year and a half, still a little bit of a social network, still like one cousin, still like some, you know, Braithwaite's idea is like, why don't you, why don't you go and just kill people? Well, one of the reasons is that you think that you might be caught and your mother might find out and be ashamed of you, you know, and it's, it's burning that last bridge. It's like really becoming shameless. Like, so like at 18 months, maybe you still think, you're not going to go all the way because you're worried that mom might find out. But by 24 months, you're you're so deep in the hole that you can't see any light. And uh, add to that um, uh, new people losing work because of more load shedding. Uh, add to that um, the the conflict between Enoch Gorongwana and uh, uh, um, Oh gosh, who's been on the other side of this wage, uh, uh, this waged Tulasan Gracie, the worst yes, of the worst. Labor minister, or well, minister so, of not employment. The minister of unemployment. Uh, you know, do do government workers get um, less than inflation or twice as much as inflation? Um, dude, I think. In, in, in August, in July, August, June, somewhere around, maybe earlier than later, June, you get massive strikes. Exactly what you're saying. It's more political. It's less looting. It's, it's totally destructive and commanding. But it's not led by um, Save South Africa uh, trying to get rid of Jacob Zuma. You know, those anti-Zuma protests that I went to, more than 10,000 people, totally peaceful, very, very jolly. Uh, no, no, no. Those people are not going to turn against Ramaphosa. Uh, they, they might write one or two op-eds against him, but like the real organizing force 
that is waiting its turn are the labor unions. And in South Africa, there are a couple of good labor unions. And in the around the world, you know, there are, labor unions have an important role to play. But like predominantly, the labor unions have only become worse since Zuel and Zima Vavi stopped being the head of Kasatu. And, and they can organize a mass campaign of like, you know, where the government sets out, government workers set out to make the country ungovernable. It's going to be a joke. It's going to be hilarious, but it's going to fit in the like long list of jokes that you and I have shared about like is South Africa really a country where the police are fighting with the police and where the you know armed your private security the ANC are. marches on the ANC <laughs> when you know the ANC you know, Lady Pondo is trying to figure out what's ruining Eskom. Really, Montasha thinks <laughs> there's, there's something. There's something here. Someone, <laughs> someone is destroying this institution, and we haven't found them yet, but we will. So, you know, I think I think that like big bad mass strikes and some back and forths there. Uh could be that, could be xenophobic pogroms, could be a real flippin' heavy dude. Operation Dudula is a for serious dude. The the brown shirt thing, I've never felt so much like uh 1930s as as like when I see dudes in yes. camo walking around having fights on TV about how all of the crime is being done by foreigners. I've been in that room. I've been in that studio. Freaking hospitals, which they did through most of the end of last year. Yeah, yeah. So you think those dudes aren't prepared to to go balls to the wall? You know, like proper blood on the streets. It's already happened. It's constantly happening at a low level. Uh, And if you if you can just get like a couple of Nigerians like beating up, like shooting a South African teenager who's like come to just get that on on camera, meme it around the country. Uh, anything can light the powder keg. It seems so dry. There's so little uh, talk against violence. Uh, that's that's serious. Anyway, so I think I'm worried about that. But like, dude, okay, I want to fly off into another direction. We've got five minutes left, so I just want to say, in very brief summary, the 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 actual only topic that we had agreed to touch on was <laughs> that was the one we haven't talked about yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's artificial is, intelligence and it's connected to this in the AI, sense that right. like we had this talk about you know chat gpt computers that can write essays as you know and and a whole, a, the other there's a whole bunch of other stuff too at the moment it's not just chat gpt but uh, yeah but that's the, that's the make music one. make yeah, yeah make i uh, make movies make photos i think I, the essay writing one is kind of interesting to me because it's like you know your job could be taken your your a weekly column on on history summarizing history like oh yeah that uh, that that that's gone in fact i was thinking of writing the next one with ai to see how well it comes out and 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 my partner says that like uh she 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 played around with chat gpt and it wrote an essay a philosophy essay that she thought was like kind of as good as a b minor student of hers and then she was like she couldn't really tell but she'd be interested to kind of you know slip one in to see if it stands out or, or not because there is something dude you read like yeah i mean even reading anyway so i, I saw uh, one of my relatives sent me a joke about this recently yeah which is that it turned out that it was actually extremely easy to defeat the robot uprising because uh when the robots designed through machine learning their uh, military they looked across all the historical data and since most wars were fought with spears that's what they equipped themselves with so you ask, uh, okay. So the humans were able to defeat the spear-wielding robots. <laughs> that is funny. 
I like that. So, but, but and that very much gets to my my baseline talking point on that. Like, I've only got two talking points, and I've had the same two talking points for ten years, but I think that they're very. Good. And the one is that, um, in a lesser known, is that when I was studying philosophy of art, um, uh, we uh, we were asked like, what's the first time that art was ever used in the way that we think of it in in contemporary language? Um, you know, something that covers music, painting, theater. Etc. Um, and nobody gets the answer right. The answer is Leo Tolstoy. Uh, Leo Tolstoy in uh, you know 1860s. Um, before that, you know, uh, you know, translations from ancient texts about you know art are typically translations about you know poetry or theater or, or some particular art form. Just the notion of pulling all that stuff together is pretty new. But what's pretty old, the surprise is like, when's the first time that someone said, well, here comes a new art form. Here comes a new medium. And the medium is the message. And so because there's a new medium, the message is ruined. Uh, and humans aren't going to be able to get along. And the answer turns out to be Socrates. Maybe not the first, but but definitely two and a half thousand years ago, this guy's complaining. <laughs> well, yeah, somewhere close to the front. People are writing stuff down. He's very worried about people writing things down. Because of all the same reasons that we have today. Uh, you know, worrying about like uh, online internet discourse. You know, you 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 don't have as much face to face. Uh, when you when you have a conversation, it takes more effort to get there. So there's this like natural build up and denouement where you can like reflect and think about it. You know, even the French phrase today kind of fits in nicely: le humour d'escalier, the humour of the staircase. Like you've gone and met with someone, you've had an argument, and then you think of the witty comeback line as you're walking up the staircase to leave. Like there, the joke is that you, you never think of the funny line in time, but the beautiful insight there is also that like the fact that you have to walk up a staircase afterwards kind of reflects uh, on the, the, the slow down nature of in-person conversations. And it offers you, it forces on you this kind of moment of reflection. The fact that you literally have to physically extricate yourself from the conversation. Whereas online, you can kind of flip from one thing to the next also, you can interrupt each other in conversation, and he's really worried in writing. You can't do it. So in writing, you can kind of be bamboozled because someone can say something that seems a little bit vague. You don't get to clarify it. He keeps building on these vaguenesses and eventually draws a conclusion that's like the opposite of true, but kind of all seems to fit together, and you haven't been able to interrupt it. Uh, so he, just, I mean, he says, dude, we've started writing things down. Instead of arguing with each other, we're writing each other letters. I'm telling you, civilization is not going to survive this. Humans are going to turn into beasts. And it's going to be a terrible, terrible thing. Was he? And, and it's, yes. And Plato writes it down. We, we laugh about it two and a half thousand years later. And the same thing happened with the radio. And the same thing happened with TV. And the same thing happened with print, printing press. And it is true that there are disruptions. And there are political kind of things that happen when you get, you've got this new media moment. You know, there's a bit of an arms race between those who are trying to use it for good. And those who are trying to use it for ill. Gatekeepers get exploded. New gatekeepers get erected, etc. But like, you know, we've survived all of them. We're going to survive the next one. That's kind of the one thought. And the other thought, more interesting thought probably from my side is exactly what you're saying about spears and guns. Like the, 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 my most useful probably insight from uh, my deepest insight from my own uh, university days uh, studying philosophy, wrote my thesis about personal identity, is that a person, you know, one is a person, this is the AI question that we were being asked on Tuesday in, in some liberal club talk. If if a robot can write music better than us and uh, 
do all this other stuff, you know, make movies, make sculptures. What's really left of us? Well, a person has two sides, and the one side is the phenomenological side, the side that, you know, like an ice cream scooper goes through the universe of feelings, can, can taste the ice cream, can smell the lemon verbena or the freshly cut grass, can see the, uh, the, the black sky and the, and the white stars sparkling in them. There's something that it likes. It feels like to hold someone's hand and so on. And, uh, and robots don't have that. They don't have you know, 1960s. They called it qualia. In the 1860s, they called it phenomenology. Uh, I think in the 2060s, they'll just be calling it stuff that it feels like to experience. Uh, subjectivity is a uh, uh, sort of 19th century common uh, word for it. They don't have subjectivity. And it turns out that like a lot of moral interest comes into play once you've got subjectivity. It's a necessary but insufficient condition um, because pleasure and pain come into play as subjective experiences. And uh, the other side of being a person, so one side is that you're a moral target in the sense of personhood, uh, you have interests in pleasure and pain and other experiences that other people owe you an obligation uh, in, in, as a result of. And the other side of it is that you're an agent, uh, is that you do things, you compute. And computers compute too. And yeah, computers are better than human beings at playing chess and have been for a long time. That's only made chess more interesting. All of the greatest chess masters, critics, and so on agree, uh, excepting for one uh, Bobby Fisher, who went completely mad and looks like a <laughs> yes, famously <laughs> <laughs> completely around the bend. And uh, I think the same is going to be true for writing essays and and so on. You know, there's going to be some. You're going to have to like the so first look, professor my... I saw said, "Dude, you write the essay," and yeah, I... you, if you suspect the student didn't do it properly, then you bring them in for an in-person verbal exam. And you know what? I think in-person verbal exams are great. Uh, and uh, they're harder to supervise. There's less transparency. And in a world of like work, like I don't trust a lot of American universities to administer them very well. But like there is something about if we're forced to do that more, maybe we're going to do it better. Right, it could actually right, improve right. university education to test people less on their computational, on the, on the kinds of skills that are the easiest to mimic by a computer. Right. No, yeah. And there's lots of interesting parts. And this is, I guess, my, my sort of point here is that I'm extremely skeptical of anyone's ability to truly predict the course of the sort of knock-on effects of technology in a complex system, especially when that technology is very new. Um, because the person who is going to, or, or, or the use for AI that is going to be most revolutionary probably hasn't been worked out yet. I don't think anyone for the first five, maybe even 10 years, really knew how to properly leverage social media. And then someone figured it out. And then it became, it changed the whole impact of the technology. So the sort of kind of doom mongering humans are obsolete stuff, I think is a bit silly. Um, yeah, I kind of want to push it back against that because I remember having a conversation in 20. So maybe you're right. If you're including in social media, the MySpace period, then I think you could be right. But by no, 20, yeah, by 2010, I think, you know, the, the kinds of, you know, Twitter, the Twitter leaks that came out since we last spoke, Twitter has been shadow banning people and throttling people. Like it was very clear to me 
and the dudes I was talking with in 2010, 2011, 2012, that this is the value add, that, that this, this is the place to find super economic profits in social media um, is by playing, a, you know, office space. You remember the office space movie where they'd like steal the fractions of cents that come yes, from yes. bank interest. And so like the bank kind of hides it in an escrow account. So if you steal it, the bank won't come after you because they kind of shouldn't have it. It should be the customers, but the customers the won't come after you. It ended in Kuala Lumpur with the, between the two big towers. I think it ends with him like smashing a computer. Does he go to Kuala Lumpur after that? Oh, I don't know. Wait, carry on. I get your point. Anyway, the point is that there's, you know, like the dollars and cents, you know, that you stop with the cents, right? There's only two decimal points that can actually show up as making a difference in your account. So like, let, let so if all you're my, looking at oh. is your account, then that's all you can see. But the reality has more fractions and the computer gets to play in that reality. And because it can manipulate the more fractions than you can detect, it can alter things in a way that you can't detect. And, 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 that's, and that's the idea of shadow banning and throttling, right? Is that you can see the number of likes, you can see the number of views, you can see something about how your story propagates through the social network, but there's more fractions in the algorithm as it were, like likelihoods of this showing up on someone else's wall or not, than you are able to detect. And they can make you seem more or less likable. They can make you more or less shareable without you being right. able to pick up on that. It's like stealing the fractions right. of sense. Right. And on any particular channel, that doesn't necessarily make much of a difference uh, on one occasion. Um, but on but it can make a, make a very big... On yeah. aggregate, like with the Biden story, Hunter Biden's laptop being quashed by... The, so so my, the, the key example of our use for this is a little bit older, but um, when the printing press was invented, right? Uh, it was kind of a thing... It was sort of in the marketplace. It competed a little bit with books, with, with the uh, other way of doing books. It had its advantages and disadvantages. Not and as pretty. Yeah. yeah, it was It was not as socially, it was not hugely socially disruptive until um, Martin Luther realized you could print a million billion pamphlets. And uh, that was what made it kick off. Because and not just print pamphlets, because I think there had been some pamphlets, but like print pamphlets that are, Politically insane. Yeah, really fiery, spicy pamphlets. Um, and and in fact, that was the backbone of the early printing industry was not actually books. It yeah. was uh, pamphlets and everything. Yeah. Everyone used the pamphlet. Uh, the, the Protestants used it. The Catholics used it. Uh, people used it to advertise um, organizing new crusades against the Ottomans. Uh, yeah. It was kind of used for freaking everything. And that, that kind of understanding of truly the sort of weird breakthrough of what this technology could do um, was completely revolutionary caused a century of of chaos and disruption but <laughs> but no one quite saw it coming until it happened and yeah I, and it's a little bit i think the smartphone is also a relatively good example of that as well which is that you know internet and cell phones it was like oh yeah no, this is cool and all that and they became pretty widespread you know especially in places like south africa where there wasn't uh, a strong landline network and then the moment someone put a little not very good computer inside of a cell phone the gig economy began <laughs> uh, yeah in a big way so uh, I, I think ai is going to be a little bit like that where someone is going to find out what chat gp is really useful for in you know three four five years and that'll be very interesting 
So what I'm suggesting is I think I think that someone already knows and it just hasn't come down the line. So what I'm trying to say uh, is like... That's possible too. My, my example maybe didn't come through, but like I was chatting with a dude who was working fairly high up at Google 12 years ago. And it was very clear how Twitter... Did Twitter even exist? How Facebook and company were going to make money. And the one thing was going to be by buying startups and integrating their apps into the, the motherboard app and the other, the other was going to be by um using the algorithm to uh leverage right, that's why they call themselves meta these days and not facebook influence and uh and 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 the flip side of that is to make themselves into an advertising company which sells advertising uh, you know, and, and, to, and to kind of realize that all advertising, you know, the best advertising companies aren't the ones selling products. They're the ones selling airtime uh, that have managed to, you know, make the most cozy relationships with whatever the major platforms are. And, and that's exactly what they did. You know, it's sort of weird going back over the notes. Um, like uh, the, the revelations, and I think it's part of the Twitter revelations not feeling so revelatory. It's like, well, anyone who just thought about like how, how are they going to make sure that the regulatory environment and that the political environment is as friendly to their main value-add purpose as possible, which is getting newspapers, TV, radio to constantly refer back to them as authoritative so that they have this these eyeballs in this mode that makes it easy for them to function as an advertising space, which they're able to commodify. Well, it's by moving the algorithm a little bit like this, a little bit like that, to sort of keep the to keep the place kind of clean of those uh, uh, notions that'll that'll make it debate worthy. And it's part of the problem with Elon Musk. It's like, you know, the the notion of Twitter as being a genuinely interesting place to have lots of debates where there's no shadow bank. dude. It's not that is not as as tantalizing a profit uh, mo making model as the notion of a carefully curated space you know the, there's mu and this takes me to music so like i think one of the so i don't know what the the chat gpt winning line is but let's suppose it's muzak muzak is an old word for um music that's played for the particular purpose of promoting consumerism uh elevator music uh, you know, music in in restaurants, in hotel lobbies. It's the basis for one of my favorite genres of music, actually, vaporwave, <laughs> which just takes that and then sort of remixes it. <laughs> and and you know, everyone kind of knows it when they hear it when it's when it's done from another era. Um, and sometimes it's frustrating. Like I remember when Checkers was playing Pink Floyd at a certain point in the early 2010s. Like, it kind of irritated me because. And Celine Dion, honestly, I loved Celine Dion when I was seven. The most famous yeah. example of this is uh, Mariah Carey's "All I Want for Christmas Is You," which gets rolled out at Christmas. And it's like, ah, you know, if you really like that song, then it's really frustrating to you that it's being used as music. But I could have, so you know, Walter Benjamin um, uh, died trying to escape from, uh, from, from France into Spain. Uh, during World War II as a Jewish intellectual um, being hounded by the Nazis, carrying the arcade story, which was about, you know, a critical aesthetic analysis of shopping malls, effectively. Uh, 
the sort of arcades that had been built in Paris in the 19th century and that continued to serve their function as like you know long corridors with uh, uh, beautiful um, pillars upholding you know walkways that are shielded from the rain and the snow and have shop fronts at the bottom level and he thought that you could kind of understand a lot of the world by understanding that stuff, which is a little bit like trying to understand the world by looking at Facebook. You know, Facebook is the modern arcade. So Walter Benjamin is exactly the right guy to look at. And his most famous aesthetic idea is that the photograph is like an existential threat to um, beauty because uh, there is this thing, the aura, uh, that, that hovers over um, original handmade products, whether it's the statue of david by michelangelo or the mona lisa whatever it is there's this kind of this this ephemeral glow around it like people really care about it and what the photograph does is it dissolves the aura because you've got this like unique beautiful image but that it can be reproduced a million times and each time you copy paste this photo it's somehow um uh, cuts into the aura okay but hold on you know fast forward 100 years go to the metropolitan museum of art in new york city Go to see Starry Night by Van Gogh, and you're going to see 50,000 people a day go past that individual handmade image and take a selfie with it. You know, it's crazy. I'm not a huge fan of that, but no one would take a selfie with a reproduction, even a perfect, visually indistinguishable reproduction of Starry Night or the Mona Lisa or whatever, because we still have the aura. In fact, if anything, photography has, has enhanced the notion of the original as being something super special so that you go with your little photo apparatus computer handheld device to like pray before the true original you know the, if, well, if you a, made a replica of the setup of the true original <laughs> so you put exactly. in your room the thing that looked like the original <laughs> and dude i'm sure there's like a wonderful with the, with performance the low, art with the low resolution <laughs> yes the low res crappy photograph of this like you know it's it's a you know you i can imagine someone trying to make a buck on a gimmick and i can imagine an artist making an interesting kind of performance piece out of out of that spoof um and certainly you know Andy warhol a lot of the greats have made interesting spoof you know you you take the famous painting and then you you mix up the colors and you draw a mustache and whatever there are these games to play but they all come back to the fact that we have a scent we have a sentimental connection between our P-sheets, our phenomenological access points, lining up with someone else's phenomenological access points. We, you know, the notion, as beautifully uh, put in that play, History Boys, of, of a story, reading a book, the, what's the reward at the end of it? It's that like someone's hand comes out of the book and you can hold that hand, even if they lived, you know, Dante lived 700 years ago, but you can kind of feel his heart beating next to yours um, in, a, in, a, in a sense when you sort of traverse the corridors of hell. You can hear it thumping in your ear. It's very, very personal. And it wouldn't be the same if you knew that it was written by a robot, even if all of the words were indistinguishable, because what we're seeking for is a connection with, uh, with something else that also can taste and smell and hear and, and experience the world subjectively as we do. Uh, because subjective triangulation turns out to be the basis of epistemological practice. Like it, It's a real evolutionary need. Like In order to make sense of the world, I need to look at the elephant from one side. You need to look at it from the other side. We need to kind of say, you do, you know, can you see his, can you see the pink dot on this side of the elephant? You're like, no, I can't see it. You're talking rubbish. There's no pink dot. I'm like, come over to my side. You come to my side. You see the pink dot. I see the pink dot. Ah, we can both see the pink dot. That's how language works. That's how understanding works. Hunting, 
gathering, making food together, bringing up babies, like all of the basic social things that we need to do require, have created, have engendered a deep urge for connecting with something that we know to also experience the world subjectively like we do. That's what music comes out of, in my opinion. And it, this need to feel to feel something authentically connected to another person, something that's come from something like us. Uh, music, poetry, all that stuff, plays, etc. So I think that, you know, musicians that play live gigs are under no threat. Uh, you know, even even the watching music, like when I was spending money on watching ways, music. In a lot of ways, the business model's already transformed into something where musicians make most of the money from the live gigs. Yeah, exactly. Dave Matthews, this story, that story is 10 years old, right? Yeah. When Dave Matthews had his years being like the highest earning musician because he was doing touring colleges in America like 12, 13 years ago. And he just figured out like selling CDs, no, just, just playing 200 concerts a year at every American university that you can squeeze in. But you, know, you can make more money than, the, than the, the highest selling CD pop star because there's more money in the flesh. And when I was watching like Dead Mouse and Armin Van Buren and Avicii and these like tech uh, gang stars. Yeah, Dead Mouse, Dead Mouse has got an I, like a <laughs> like an iMac sitting on a desk with a lot of pyrotechnics around it and, and like a hundred thousand people squashed into a small sweaty box to but come you and wanna, watch that. It's so important that he's and there. And it's all made with and computers. He's, it, and he's, but he's his, there. And, and that he's wearing his stupid hat, mouse head. <laughs> because but you know that there's a human that's being what makes, Yeah, that, that's what makes the whole thing. If it um, turned out that inside of Dead Mouse was a computer or Daft Punk. Daft Punk also have this, like, you can't yeah, the see robot their skin. Hats. They're really you know, they playing stopped, with it. They're really pushing it so that you can almost... They shut down the band, I think, like a year or two ago. It was very sad. Anyway, sorry. But they're a great band. And, they, and, and if it turned out that there was a computer inside people would stop listening to the music. I'm not saying everyone, I'm not saying all of the time, but I'm saying it would fundamentally alter people's relationship because people right. care about the story. They care about the origin right. story of the song, of the play, of the whatever. They care about that. Song. But music is different. The anonymous stuff that you hear in the elevator, yeah, the yeah. anonymous the st stuff. Stock music. No one cares. No one knows yeah. the name of the band. If, and maybe in 10 years' time, computers are going to be making that more cheaply, more effectively, fresher, more fabulously. The restaurant that wants to play stuff, the casino that wants music to be playing, that just makes you want to bet more. They're going to be like, dude, the algorithm is just better at and, doing that than anyone else. Another example, AI, AI generated stock photos. Yeah. You're a stock for model. articles. Start for... looking for another job. <laughs> yeah. That, that's exactly the perfect thing that an AI can produce cheaply. And that is, and that is the story, the more general stories. It is a story of inequality. Technology, the thing that technology is the best at doing is exacerbating inequality. The guys at the top of the musical food chain are going to be fine. The guys at the top of the journalism food chain are going to be fine. The guys at the top, you know, photographers, full war photographers that are in Ukraine, like snapping pictures of dead bodies, they're fine. But people whose job is to like take some, you know, cheesy stock photo that can be reproed a million times, they're not fine. The musician who's like, who's, who's, People want to come and see him or her. They're fine. The musician who kind of plays like corporate jingles for advertising companies to survive, that dude's not fine. Uh, so the middle, the middle, bottom of the it pyramid was, uh, people Charlie are Sheen's not character fine. in um, Two and a Half Men. That was how he made his money. I think it was corporate jingles. Exactly. Exactly right. Mm. And that's and, – and I think – and you know what? What does that mean? 
it means that the people i'm not worried about that because i think the people that are competent enough to find those jobs are competent enough to to you know wiggle laterally and make it the the big threats like you know driverless cars dude they're never coming to south africa because they'll be burnt to the ground we're burning buses we're burning taxis like if a foreigner drives a bus if if a foreigner the drives a, a truck, is too complicated to calculate even for an ai <laughs> the ai's cannot handle south africa and that my friend is the my main point that agency forget about phenomenology let's let's shift away from art let's shift towards hard computation we already have non-phenomenological agents. We already have agents around, computers around that are computing things, that are taking in inputs and generating outputs in, and as action. Inputs as beliefs, impressions of the world, outputs as action that are that that don't have a soul, as it were. That soul in the in the musical sense of like that, that there's nothing that it feels like to be there, not in the sense of something that survives death. Um, those agents are called taxi associations. They're called the Institute of Race Relations. They're called FNB or Standard Bank. That is the name of a persona ficta, an artificial person, a person with beliefs, with a bank account, with things that it does. You can sue it for doing these things. You can hold it responsible in court. You can reward it by paying it. Every business is an agent, and none of them have souls. There's nothing that it tastes, feels like to eat ice cream for FNB. And the biggest agents in the world are countries. And the most, this probably without question, I would say, the smartest agent in the world is called the United States of America. Now, I can grant you, and the funny thing about saying that is, of course, the USA can't elect anyone better than Biden or Trump, um, which doesn't seem to be. <laughs> yeah, but, smartest. I, I can think of many definitely. very positive adjectives, very <laughs> many positive adjectives, but smartest is I'm not sure if the one I would pick. <laughs> smartest, 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 most computational power. Dude, America has a, the American government. How many people work for the American government? Like 50 million human computers are on a daily basis crunching out human computations for the American government. The American government also employs like hundreds of millions of digital computers. The American government, they ask, if, you, if any computer wants to outcompete you or me at chess or writing essays or whatever it is, go for it. You've already won. You won long ago. If, you, if a computer wants to take over the world, if a computer really wants to kind of tip the political balance, it has to beat America. And America already has hundreds of millions of hardened software computers and like at least 50 million wetware computers that are constantly working for it. You can't beat it. The competition's not even close. Computers can't even beat the taxi association agent agency of South Africa. And that thing is, dude, there's no computer in the world as smart as the South African Taxi Association. I'm telling you. They, there's no computer that can beat them. So uh, that's my QED case for like all the all the scaremongering. I'm not saying it's not scary. I'm not saying like, dude, the, my weirdest thing at Christmas was like for the first time having a Christmas with my family where some of the older teens were like kind of struggling to get through the day without going onto their phones. Like I've never seen mm. that before. And and I, I kind of teased them a little bit about it. And then like I asked them, they're all on Snapchat. None of them have Facebook. They like laugh at the idea. Of <laughs> Facebook's for the old people, yes. They've all got Snapchat, dude. I went through the data. The the one had just gotten Snapchat because she just had a birthday, so it was like a Christmas present. She was allowed to use Snapchat. In one day, she'd done like two hundred and fifty six pictures that she'd sent or received. It's like holy Moses! One day, two hundred fifty six visual images sent or received. Her older sister. I'm sorry to expose, but 
family. It's like a but year. I, for me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's easily a year. Like I've never. That's like the last three years of Facebook messaging. Yeah, three years, four years. <laughs> but then I asked her older sister, dude. She had done like eight hundred thousand in two or three years, and then her brother in in three years had done one point two million. Lord. We worked it out. It's like six five hundred a day for him and six hundred a day for us. So four, you know, four four to six hundred a day every day for three hundred sixty five days for several years. And then it's like you realize like it counts. Like, look, there's some funny things about how it counts things, but it's like it's a hell of a lot of exchanges. And uh, you know, I saw it in my other sort of nieces thing when she turned sixteen. Like, anyway. Dude, so I'm I'm not saying that there isn't scary stuff to do with like huge overexposure to 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 mindless screen time. In the same way that like when human beings first figured yeah, out how it's... to pull sugar rocks out of a sugar cane crystal, like there was a lot of dudes who like ate too much sugar. Uh, right. and like when we first had vodka, a lot of dudes drank too much vodka. All that kind of you know, then you figure out how to like drink a glass of wine with dinner. Right, right, right. It, it they, it's not all good. There is a period of adaptation and the problems yeah. become new. Um, but in terms of power, you've got to ask yourself, these things are agents. What are the, what are the agents they're competing with? It's not you and me, the agents. We already work for an institution that is a group agent because in some sense, we appreciate that like, um, the, the, the sum can be greater than the, the, the whole can be greater than the sum of its parts when humans act as constituent figures in a, in a bigger agent, you know? Uh, so, <laughs> so that's the competition. How many yeah. how many photos I have put on Facebook, and the answer is sixty four. <laughs> <laughs> I've had it since at least what twenty seventeen or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean Snapchat's better because it's not leaving as much of a trace. No, sure, like, sure, 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 sure. It's not quite the same. It's okay, um, but it's a lot of it's. You know, you look at the hours. The main thing is to look at the hours. And the funny thing is, like, when I was 16, the thing that was the skip, maybe not 16, but, like, definitely when I was 15 and, like, kind of emo and, like, grumpy, braces, the worst acne in school kind of a thing. Like, I think the scariest thing about my life was how much TV I watched on holiday. Like, I could just zone out in front of the TV the whole day. I could watch eight hours of TV in a day. And that's gross. And now kids watch eight hours of, like, interactive TV where they're kind of taking photos. Maybe it's that already makes me think maybe it's better. You know, if I compare my own TV binge watching to constant Snapchatting. Anyway, eternal. I hate sounding like an optimist, but I just I just think technology. Is, <laughs> yeah, no. I think technology uh, is not the problem. I think the problem is the the agents that are the most powerful are the most dangerous. No, no. They are Te- America. Technology. They are South Africa. They're the South African Taxi Association. If you want to worry about big scary computers. Worry about the South African government. That's what it is. It is already here. The big scary computer that is taking in, that's generating beliefs, implementing desires through programs of action that impact on your life. It already exists. And in the early days of computers, there was often this notion of like using the computer as a metaphor for a kind of mindless um, exercise of, of government power. And, you know, that Charlie Chaplin movie where he makes the speech that everyone loves. It's like he acts like he's Hitler until he gets the fascist stage and then he makes his humanist speech. He's like, guys, the whole fascist notion is to treat human beings just like computers. 
Like we machines. are not machines. Yes, men, like not machines. machines. We are not machine men. We are men with hearts. That you know, that there, yes, yes. there is something very important about recognizing that the government is a machine, and it's a much bigger, much more powerful machine than the thing you're holding in your hands or the most fancy version of the thing that you're holding in your hands. In 50 years, in 100 years, you you're not gonna. Then no computer is going to be as powerful as the South African government is right now, and that's the South African government, not the South Korean government. Not the Russian government, not the German government, not the UK or Japanese government, not even the Chinese government or the American government. Just the South African government beats beats the best computer, and uh, and that's why you should worry much more about us and our attitudes. And the connection yeah, well, between that and the previous story is like you know, with the film camera in the handheld smartphone recording the white dudes throwing the black dude into the swimming pool, like. It's not that complicated to know that you should just ask a question about the editing of that footage. Why did it stop when it stopped and what happened before? What was the fight about before? It's, you, but no one's asking that because it's – and it's not the technology's fault. It's not the technology's fault that I couldn't find after a few days anything on News24 or The Guardian or Business Live investigating that question. Or the Daily Maverick. You know, I couldn't uh, I couldn't find anyone asking that question. It didn't seem like any of the journalists had been instructed by any of the editors to ask that question. That's not the technology's fault. We've had journalists being confronted by footage evidence of, of crimes or potential crimes for decades, for the entire lifespan of all of the journalists involved. They are native. We are all native to interpreting video footage, you know. If it was the 1930s, you could say, well, you know, the young guys have grown up with this, but the oldsters aren't so keen on the moving pictures. They're still coming to understand the semantics of it. Like, we're all video native, and it's not enough because the machinery of, you know, name brand publications, which are machines, which are group agents, are – that's the problem, you know, not the not the tech. I I – no, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> no, no, I'm with you on that one. Uh, uh, you know, as usual, the problem is us. <laughs> exactly. We, are, you, and I. You play too much computer games. I spend too much time watching short. I definitely spend too much time watching, like, YouTube shorts. Definitely. <laughs> At least it's not TikTok. Is all I can say. Okay. Um, do you have any That's recommendations? Um. I want to recommend the no. You go first. I've had something. You no, know, I was thinking. I don't know whether it's the heat right now. I was thinking like, what's an interesting thing I've read recently? And you know what? I thought, ah, screw it. I'm just going to recommend what I did on holiday, which is I watched Eddie's action movies. Um, and Predator remains fantastic. Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, good pacing and build up. In fact. The worst directing decision in that whole film is the fact that it starts with a shot of a spacecraft. That was the biggest mistake they made in the film. Because if they had not put that in, and I wonder if a studio forced the director to put that in, if they had not put that in, you would have gone into the theater to watch it for the first time. You would have watched what seemed like a typical macho 80s action movie until all of a sudden there's a giant alien monster with dreadlocks killing everyone out of nowhere. It's so well built up. Anyway. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I, I as it. I enjoy all those films. <laughs> the TV show that I'm currently watching is White Lotus, 
I'm nearly through the end of the first season. It's like definitely the awards darling. Um, and I respect yes, it. I, I think I, it's very well written. I heard about it, but then I didn't go any further. Yeah, I mean, the premise is like, you know, let's film um, people on holiday. And what I like about that is, you know, at a resort, is that I think that holiday, I mean, we're coming to the end of a holiday um, season. Holidays are difficult. We all have to, when we go on holiday, play the role of the aristocrat. You know, you no longer get meaning out of your day by doing labor for someone else for payment. And so you've got this free time, they call it. And, you you know, okay, so then what do you do? And I think that sometimes, you know, if one finds oneself kind of schlumping and like, you know, sometimes it feels like, oh, my God, when I've got my own time to do something, like I just become like a, a kind of sick old dog, like lying on the couch. Like couch potato is a good word, right? And then sometimes it feels like very exciting and I go on adventures but sometimes the adventures hurt people, you know, like a holiday fling that kind of ends sour or uh, you get drunk and you get carried away with yourself and you and you insult someone. I've, I've got to say, uh, <laughs> it's been many years since I can remember getting that, uh, you know, being that boisterous. I'm kind of more on the couch potato side of things now, I suppose, in some ways. But like, you know, I don't know. I think that that, that thing I was talking about, about like, the subjective experience, what it feels like to experience the world. Like it is difficult to actually experience the world afresh, to have interesting experience, to not be boring. Might, and, and I think that's the challenge. Uh, and secession is kind of like a TV show about like really rich people, like kind of bold and the beautiful back to the basics of what like people like to watch, which is people who are so rich that they don't really ever have to work. They're billionaires. And, but they've still got family feuds. In fact, they've got worse family feuds because everyone's worried about who's going to... They've got to do something with this spare time. <laughs> and what do you do? Like, if, you, if, you don't, if you're not a couch potato and you're not, like, enjoying... Like, people mainly want to enjoy... Nature is such a go-to thing because it's healthy and it's interesting and it's exciting and it's got particularism, which is clearly very important. Um, but it's not, it's not sadistic. Like, it's so easy to become sadistic. You know, like gather around the fire and make fun of the neighbors or make fun of the, you know, I can imagine a family like 20 years ago, uh, you know, the gay cousin uh, is not invited because they're super anti-gay. And then you kind of fetch about the gay cousin, right? And then, okay, a social revolution happens and you can't make fun of the gay cousin anymore. So now what are you going to do? Well, you can like cheat on your husband or cheat on your wife or you can, you know, it's like, that's very exciting. That's the easiest, you know, the midline crisis. Easiest way to have an adventure is to go is to go and break a vow. It's quite difficult to have good, clean fun. You know, surely that's the case. And I think that what White Lotus does really well is it explores a very diverse group of people, to very different ages, very different viewpoints, um, confronting, failing at enjoying themselves. Um, so maybe that's my recommendation. But I, what I really want to recommend is a, is a short story from the New Yorker that I read, which is quite bland. Um, and I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about the topic that it sort of centers around. Um, uh, it's sort of it's 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 about a woman who uh, falls pregnant and her friend is pregnant, and 
and it's kind of but it's like sort of an unwanted pregnancy you know i don't know last year with atlanta going to to the university of leeds to give this talk about abortion and like listening to the dobbs jackson case having predicted it you know having seen it coming many years in advance and like re re reading a lot about it i guess kind of <coughs> it's a topic that i find interesting um it's not a it's it's not what you think uh, given that introduction it is a story about friendship more than anything and i think that it's something what i really like about it is that the most important part of the story is is what happened to your mind i think just after you finish reading and in that sense it reminds me of my favorite uh, short stories by william faulkner that kind of have like this rewarding ah the penny drops just a little bit a moment after you finish reading it kind of thing so i'll drop a link to that I don't know the writer, so I, and I haven't looked up her bio, um, so I'm not going to get into that. But it's been a while since I've read a New Yorker short story, and it just kind of reminded me of um, when you're in a really big city, not like jo like like Joburg CBD, um, but not like um, the suburbs. If you're in a really big city, um, there's something about that energy that produces a literature that's sort of understated and um, seeks ironic and quiet expressions of of humanity of that of that of that other person that matters uh so i'll, I'll drop a link to that maybe white lotus too cool. all right and with that i think all i can say is uh keep the flag of liberty flying